Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Crunch. It's Cam Slater here, and we're going to crunch the issues in politics and beyond. Let me know your thoughts on anything you hear today. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So what do we have coming up on The Crunch today? Well, first, I'll give you my thoughts on the importance of bringing reality into politics. And then we'll have Casey Costello, formerly from Hobson's Pledge, on to discuss what drives her and why she's decided to stand for Parliament. Next up, we'll get this week's political tragic on the line, David Farrer, the pollster and blogster. And we'll discuss a bit about his political background and some key information about polling, how it works, and what key terms and methodology you will hear. Then David and I will crunch the numbers in our exclusive poll of Northland Electorate. So we'll both crunch the numbers from our poll and tell you where things in Northland are heading. Then I'll play you a couple of my favorite songs followed by a discussion with Matt King and Shane Jones about the results of our poll. And finally, I'll call up a few of my buddies to get a sanity check on issues in a new segment called Cam's Buddies. Oh, and of course, there's the very important feedback that you guys send in, in Mailbag. Don't forget to let me know your thoughts and what you enjoy and what you hate. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So let's get into it. Enjoy the show. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. 
In politics, we see many people come and go from the scene, many without leaving so much as a footprint on the sands of time. The advent of MMP has seen many small parties formed and promoted as an alternative to the two major parties, Labour and National. But with few exceptions, those being the Green Party, Te Pāti Māori, ACT and New Zealand First, the rest have been consigned to the dustbin of history, usually after just one or two election cycles. Jim Anderton's new Labour promised much for the hard left after the upheaval of Rogernomics, but ultimately was riven with discord and personality clashes. It eventually ebbed away to nothing. Peter Dunn, the ultimate MMP creature, was the leader of many small parties, and if it wasn't for the worm in the 2002 election campaign, he would have ceased being relevant at least two terms earlier. The rest, though, and there have been many, have merely been a way to attract votes that ultimately were wasted. And so now we have the same plethora of small parties on the undercard, all saying they're the chosen few, and only they can make a difference. Most of them will be smacked in the face by reality in less than 80 days. Some will shrug that off, go away to lick their wounds, and then come back for more punishment, despite never having won anything in at least eight previous attempts. But God loves a trier, and God must surely have a sense of humour by letting these folk try again and again, over and over. They are labelled many things, but nobody has said out loud what they really are. Many small party followers, and certainly their leaders, are in actual fact reality phobes. But they don't have to be like that. I've been saying loudly for months, and I certainly say it privately when asked my opinion about smaller parties, or even to their faces when they seek my advice. You have to deal with reality. So when I hear claims from small party adherents that this party will make a difference or this party has huge support, I always ask simple but effective questions like, but will they? Or how are you gauging that? And mostly, what I get then as a reply is either hopium, that horribly addictive political drug huffed by small party players, or fairy tales from the realms of fantasy. I've heard how many likes on Facebook they have, how many followers on Twitter, TikTok, or some other social media platform. It's all a mirage. Likes, tweets, retweets, follows do not translate to votes ever. It is easy to answer the phone and give out answers even easier to retweet something or click a thumbs up on Facebook. It's quite another to actually get off the sofa and go and vote. And that's where reality bites. That's the bit small parties forget. People can and do lie to your face, but votes are votes. Reality is votes. But small parties have simple tools that they can use that they should spend money on before gearing up for an expensive campaign. They are the tools they almost never use, and that is polling. There are two questions a small party must answer. One, how do you plan on winning an electorate seat? And two, how do you plan on gaining 150,000 votes? None can ever answer that. Or when they do, the answers reveal just how much hopium they've been huffing 
So here at Reality Check Radio, where the name of our station rather suggests that the truth is what we're after, we only deal with reality. Northland is critical for two parties in particular, Democracy New Zealand and New Zealand First. Both parties are filled with genuine, honest, hardworking Kiwis. Both parties would really like the insurance of winning an electorate seat. Look, I like Shane Jones and Matt King. They're likeable fellows. But here is reality meeting hopium. We commissioned a poll in Northland so we could provide facts, not speculation. And the results are in. It's a reality check from Reality Check Radio. Stay listening, and all will be revealed later in the show when we put the results to both Shane Jones and Matt King, and we discuss the implications of the poll with David Farrer from Curia Polling. Right, that's enough from me. Next up, I'll be talking with Casey Costello about her bid for Parliament. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation, and I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given and needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Casey Costello has been the spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge, a former ACT candidate and a board member of the New Conservatives. But now she has announced she is standing for New Zealand first in this election. She's on the line now. Welcome to the crunch, Casey. Thank you very much. You had a little chat with Rodney the other day, and um, I just wanted to explore a few other angles um, about your why you've decided to become a candidate for New Zealand First and uh, to look at some of the media coverage of you um, joining New Zealand First for this election campaign. But before I want to start, I, I read uh, an article that you wrote in 2017 which you titled, written by a New Zealander of Maori ancestry, a winner in life and in business, and a true believer in truth and justice, Casey Costello. And uh, there's something I didn't know about you, um, uh, despite being a subscriber and a follower of Hobson's Pledge for a number of years, uh, that you are actually of Maori ancestry. Are you the right kind of Maori? I think if you ask, Willie Jackson, I wouldn't be. I'd be a, I'd be classified as a useless Māori. But um, yeah, I, and and I think that's the part now. We've got down to the point. It's not about your ancestry or your your culture or your heritage or tereo or it's it's whether you agree with the political construct. So, so it's the right political tribe, really, rather than 
any iwi or hapu that you belong to. Yeah. And, and I think that's evident by the fact that, you know, Māori are hapu iwi-centric um, people. We, that's, that's how we identify. That's how we connect. Um, whānau, hapu, iwi is, and yet the government, current government is so determined to centralise and and take away that identity. How, I don't know how they argue that they are representing Māori when everything they're doing is contrary to, to um, Māori culture. I was, um, I've got a friend who's a councillor in a council, uh, a district council in the North Island, and uh, he was talking to me about how uh, co-governance with regards to three or four or five or nine waters or whatever they're calling it now means for that council, he said there's something like 17 iwi and 57 hapu, and somehow they have to incorporate in this council all of those voices before they can even start to engage with everybody else. And he said it's just grinding the council processes to a halt, and he said when this water thing comes in, it's going to make it even worse. Are we heading down the wrong path here? Absolutely. In a hundred miles an hour. At, at breakneck speed, and and we just we've just forgotten about outcomes. We we we're not even considering what's the best outcome, what's going to make things more efficient. We're so focused on this idea of representation. And and I think people aren't understanding that co-governance, they it, it's kind of pictured as this kumbaya holding hands we're all going to sit around the table and agree with each other environment but how is that fundamentally possible when half the people at the table have no democratic accountability to anybody Māori don't that these representatives aren't being elected by Māori they're being appointed and we're just going to end up with whoever's got the loudest voice sitting around the table and, and those who have good things to say won't ever be heard because there's no democratic process for them to be heard. But worst of all, there's no framework under which they can be held accountable and kicked out if they fail to deliver. There's none. Well, you know, it, it's, we've seen this happen everywhere around the world that has engaged in ethno-separatism. And that's really the only word that we can really call it. We're separating society and preferring uh, one race over another. And nowhere in the world has that ever ended well. It always yeah. ends in and tears. Exactly. There's nowhere in the world that you can show that it has worked. I mean, even um, um, uh, Obama made a speech about the danger of tribalism as a form of government. I mean, it's it's everywhere has been criticised as ineffective, and and this and and to suggest that just because I claim Māori ancestry that I'm beyond reproach and I can never do anything wrong and I will always act in the best interest of my people is just is just so flawed. And the danger, the danger of our to our democracy, first and foremost, it cannot be overstated. This is the most dangerous path we can go on. And, and the biggest losers, as Winston said on Sunday, the biggest losers will be Māori. The most in need, the most vulnerable Māori will be the ones that 
all of these who claim to represent Māori, they will stand on the backs of them to keep them down in order to maintain their relevance and authority where they don't deserve it. Well, just touching on one of your comments there about this hand-wringing that goes on, we're seeing with the Kerry Allen debacle, the, the metaphoric and actual uh, car crash of her career, and there's an article in Stuff uh, on Tuesday morning that, uh, that said uh, that, just one moment, here it is, my message to Maori, we're allowed to be collectively and individually imperfect, and it's talking about how you know poor Kerry Allen, uh, the problem is, is she's a, a wahini Maori and and just basically excuse making. And there seems to be this uh, willingness in the media and in commentary uh, amongst politicians as well to demean Maori and create a victim mentality, presumably so they can fix something. But they're, they're looking at Kerry Allen's appalling behavior, her drunkenness, her uh, aggression, uh, everything that's associated with her, and then saying, oh, She's a poor, hard done by uh, Wahini Maori, and if you speak up against it, then you're a racist. And and they they tried that argument with um, the minister of local government, Anaya Mahuta, when she was being you know attacked for appalling policy, appalling legislation, mm. and she she claimed a victim narrative on the basis that you know these attacks have been racist. It, it wasn't. It had nothing to do with race. It would have been whoever, whatever minister held that portfolio who produced that piece of legislation should be vilified for it. And and if we want to be taken seriously and 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 being given credit and and being accepted as an equal in this world, then you have to take the good with the bad. You can't take all the spoils and none of the cost. And and that's you know if you want to if you want to seat at the table then you put your big boy pants on and you carry on with your job. But isn't the key to having a seat at the table is putting up an idea, putting yourself out there, and then getting elected? Mm-hmm. But there seems to be this uh, attitude that Maori don't need to be elected to anything uh, that they have this inherent right that's not even in the Treaty of Waitangi. And at the same time, we've got the rest of society demeaning Maori and disabling them by using demeaning tones and saying, well, you know, they're vulnerable, they're this, they're that, and everything else. When in reality, in New Zealand, we have uh, an equality, supposedly an equality uh, of opportunity, but not necessarily an equality of outcome, which you can never have anyway. And and that's exactly right. That this this argument that I've had since I you know first started challenging this issue was the narrative is that being Maori says you're predisposed to failure. I mean, how, what an appalling message to send to our young people that we expect less of you, that we 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 know that you're going to achieve less, so we're going to lower the standards and change the expectations. One of the most appalling narratives I, I listened to was when um, the, they were debating in the House the um, Canterbury Regional Council Naitahu Representation Bill, which was our first step to destroying our democracy, unelected representation f- forever on the Canterbury Regional Council. 
And I listened to the debate on the third reading, and it was Māori MP after Māori MP after Māori MP um, campaigning for and supporting the legislation on the narrative that democracy had failed Māori. He was success, successful individual Māori MPs. In Parliament. In Parliament, where, where 26% of the MPs are Māori currently, and they're claiming that democracy has failed Māori. My argument is that Māori have failed Māori. The democratically elected MPs have failed Māori by, by contributing to this narrative. And they have the luxury of blaming everyone else for their failures by saying it's the system, it's this. So they don't have to actually produce any positive outcomes because no matter how badly they do, they can continue to blame a system. Is this what's driving you to join New Zealand First and stand for Parliament to so that you can actually challenge that narrative directly to those disabling Maori elite that are yeah. currently in the House? Absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've spent so many years when I was in the police association and, and through Hobson's Pledge and all of these organisations where I've tried to affect change by lobbying for logic and reason. Mm. and and I. I've just reached the point where, you know, you've you've got to put your money where your mouth is and and stand for it. And one of the things I've admired the most about Winston is that he has never once played this card of I'm Māori, therefore I speak for all Māori. He has always said he speaks for New Zealanders mm. and demands better outcomes for New Zealanders. And that's that's what we need more than anything else. And you know, 30 years in politics that you've got to give them some credit when all of these, you know, run out of fuel in the tank stuff that's going on. 30 years and he's still up for the fight. And yeah. and, it's and more than 30 years. I can remember him standing in my parents' uh, lounge when I was just a nipper, and I'm 50, <laughs> 54 now. So it does it's more like 40 years or more. Yeah. And, and that's the point. I suppose it's 30 years of New Zealand first. And yeah. un, unwaveringly, um, that's what what he stood for, and and you know this this the conference on the weekend. One of the things that connected with me, me the most was the number of Māori who I felt like I'd come home. The number right. of Māori who were sitting there agreeing and going, "Yeah, this is not fair. This is not right. They don't speak for me. This isn't right. I'm not a victim." All of those sort of things that I've been saying, and and um, yeah, to me it just energised me to that this is this is where I belong. Now, you've belonged to and held positions, senior positions in other political parties, haven't you? Um, yeah, so I did I did some work with New Conservatives um, as a um, sort of a um, backroom sort of admin person. And yeah. um, I once did stand for ACT um, in 2011 because my brother, who was very political at the time, told me I had to put my name down on a list so um I was the candidate for Mangari. I think I got about 80 votes but I don't think I actually drove into Mangari during that campaign but it's fair to, is it fair to say that you were politically homeless until recent recently very much so and I'd never I'd never sought being a candidate I'd never considered being a candidate um and the more it was actually a, a press release that Winston put out earlier in the year when he sort of said Winston's back, and um, and that that was to me that 
yeah, I've got to listen to this. And and I have listened and I've you know read and I've watched. It, there was one instance, um, and this is going back when National was in power and um, New Zealand First offered 12 votes to National to get RMA reform. And at the time we were campaigning against National, well, Hobson's Pledge were campaigning against National to stop their race-based policies. And New Zealand First offered 12 votes to National to get genuine RMA reform on the basis that race was removed out of the um, the legislation or the amendments. And National turned it down and gave New Zealand EWI participation agreements. And anybody who's done any work with resource management knows what a quagmire of chaos that was. And you know, National and and you know, New Zealand First showed that they were prepared for good outcomes to do whatever it needed, partner with whoever to get proper solutions. And to me, that was a real credit. And, um, you know, they, they, they've, I think they've tested that they have really honest credentials on these issues. That was uh, under John Key's government. I, I knew the chief whip at the time, and he said to me at lunch the, the other day, that that was one of the best times he had dealt with Winston Peters was during that RMA reform. He was just appalled that John Key didn't take take up that offer. Mm. And then if you look at John Key signing away uh, the UNDRIP report uh, and bringing that into society, that is that is the the opening of the door that has led to this co governance and the heroic rewriting of the treaty and assumptions that Queen Victoria, you know, Empress of India, the uh, the ruler of the largest empire in the world, somehow signed a co-governance agreement with a whole bunch of disparate tribes that hated each other and were warring with each other that didn't even have the wheel or ability to boil water or things like that on an equal footing with someone so powerful as that, it's, it's farcical to even when you when you say it out loud like that, but bake and break it down into the most basic elements. It seems farcical that we've got political parties and elites in our society that are promulgating this idea of this partnership of equality when it wasn't like that at all. And and we're now harping back to wishing for the days when they just wanted equality because now we're, we're having members of the press, um, MPs saying that actually it was Article 3 promised equity. We've, we've now moved even further. We're, we're now supposed to be delivering equitable outcomes. I mean, the, the, just the distortion. And, and what's lost in all this is we have a really impressive history um, Sraparan and Nutter talked about how what an amazing, amazing document the treaty was. How we were one people. And how, you know, how we were so lucky and nowhere in the world did he believe a native people had been treated so well. And that's nearly a hundred years ago, Sraparan and Nutter was saying that. And now we've we're we're looking back on our history like it's something to be ashamed of and it's something hideous. Of course, not everything went perfectly. But it was something that helped us form a nation, and mm. and that nation's been formed as a result of that treaty. And going back to what, who said what, and when, and what was intended, and what was meant, is irrelevant to who we are as a nation now. 
and trying to wind back the clock, all we're doing is just losing everybody's opportunity to succeed because we're just turning ourselves in knots. Well, News Hub described you as uh, the spokesperson for a fringe organisation or lobby group, a fringe lobby group. Hobson's Pledge was a fringe lobby group. And the things that we've been talking about now go right back to the foundation of New Zealand as a country. How, how many people are members of or, or, or subscribe to Hobson's Pledge in terms of, uh, just to um, give it a size? So. The list currently is about one hundred and sixty thousand, so of uh, on our on our supporter list. So well, that's um, enough to elect a political party to parliament. Yep. That's enough yep. votes to get you over five percent. It's hardly fringe. Exactly, that's what I would have thought. But and I'll, I'll tell you a background story. When we first formed Hobson's Pledge, and we sent out a, um, and this is back in two thousand sixteen. We sent out a press release and Don Brash and I were the spokespeople, but the first press release we sent out to all the media outlets was um, only had my contact details, only had my um, phone number, my name. Don wasn't mentioned in it at all. Yeah. And not one media contacted me, but several media outlets um, tracked down every trustee that was named on our website that was male and not Māori. So they went after everybody that was, so I was totally ignored. And basically I've been ignored on the basis that you can't argue with me, it's hard to vilify me, although they, they do try. But that, that was the, the, the angle that they took right from when we, we, we set up was that we were going to destroy the argument of arguing for equality before the law and make it racist and make it and, and John Key was the first one to condemn us. You know, John Key was the first one that kind of, he was Prime Minister at the time, came out and, and mocked Don and said, oh, you know, we've moved past this as a country. Um, that, that was John Key's comment towards demanding equality before the law. And as you say, that was the government that signed up to UNDRIP. That was the government that gave us the Marine and Coastal Area Act. Um, that was the government that first started the water discussions with the Iwi Chairs Forum. You know, this is this is the stuff that, um, you know, and now every single centimetre of our coastline is under some sort of claim under the Marine and Coastal Area Act. So, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> we now, we've, quite now we've got three waters. And what a lot of people don't understand too is that the three waters idea didn't come out in any out of thin air. That, no. was be, that was being investigated and driven by the National Party before they lost power. And, exactly. I know, and I know that's the case because I know the helicopter pilot that was flying John Key and Jerry Brownlee and a number of other people around uh, surveying uh, the North Island rivers, et cetera, and he said to me, you cannot believe what was said in that on, over the headsets on that flight. And you know you can blame the Labour Party for really pushing ahead with the with the three waters and the co-governance and all of those ideas, but but it was it was birthed inside the National Party. And if people are going to vote National to get rid of Labour, then all they're doing is turning a coin over, and Nationals the heads and Labour's the tails on that same coin. That uh, and this constant flip-flopping between red and blue teams and just changing the, sh the shirts has, hasn't done well 
for New Zealand for the last 30 or 40 years. And it's insanity to think it's going to change anything uh, by doing that again in this election. And is that your, your gut feel as well, that you can't contemplate being a member of the Labour Party or the National Party because of that? And so you're looking for someone who's actually saying, I want to put New Zealand first and foremost before any other country or any other ideas. And, and that's exactly the point that we, if, if, you know, if, if we don't have some strength that's going to pull policy and legislation back into the centre and, and back to re- respecting, you know, New Zealanders equal in their citizenship, regardless of their ancestry or ethnicity, we're, we're doomed. And, and I, I make no bones about that. National have, as you say, an appalling record on this issue and they're dancing on the head of a pin when they say that you know we say no to co-governance of public services what does that mean that is just evasion that is just absolute evasion water is not a public service it's a natural resource if they're advocating that we don't support co-governance of public services but we're okay with natural resources then then what's the answer that Water is a natural resource, so therefore they are being evasive. On the same thing, on one hand, they say that the Māori Health Authority will go under a national government, and and the their health spokesperson, who I have a lot of respect for, Dr Shane Rete, he's gone, you know, he's emailed us and confirmed that he is going to introduce compulsory cultural competency training for every single person working in the health sector. But how what does, does that, that but, but exactly what does it mean? Like, I was born in Fiji. I'm a, I'm a Fijian. I might not look it. I might, <laughs> I might look like, you know, yeah, average white person, but I can't be called uh, a Kaivalangi in Fiji. Right? Kaivalangi means foreigner, not born here, basically. But yeah. I was born there. So I'm a Kaiviti. So if I go into the hospital system in New Zealand and the Filipino nurses are now treating me and have to be culturally. How are they going to do that? What does this cult is? Are they going to account for all uh, cultures, or is it just Maori culture that that we're being that that this awareness is being done for? And and if that's the case, isn't that more condescension in treating Maori differently when they t- tip up at a hospital when we're mm-hmm. all human beings and our physiology and our makeup and our DNA is all pretty much the same, you know, uh, from a medical point of view. And and this argument that we keep hearing time and time again, this this idea that of systemic racism and constitu- you know, institutional racism and stuff like that, if that actually was true, if that was right, why are not our courts bogged down by claims of, you know, of... Um, of racist conduct and breaches of the human rights and stuff like that. If that was actually true. Now I have cared for my elders throughout my life in hospital and, and Māori and non-Māori that I've you know been sat next to in hospital and I have never encountered anything but care and consideration and kindness. Yeah, there's a lack of resourcing, there's frustration through lack of facilities and but to suggest that anybody is 
deliberately being racially insensitive is just an affront to the poor people that are trying to keep New Zealand healthy. There's always the the exception of these, you know, there's always a rude person out there that's that's just a cantankerous, grumpy yeah. person that that does things. They're an exception. Most Kiwis, yeah. most Kiwis, and, I, and I've been critical of this in the past, most Kiwis go along to get along. Yeah. Right? We, we, we don't want to have uh, this antagonism, this rewriting of history, this somehow... Uh, yeah, it reminds me constantly now when we see it in in the paper we're told or in in the news we're told about how colonialism was evil and the British haven't done anything and it just reminds me of Monty Python's famous sketch you know what have the Romans, the Romans. ever done for us <laughs> my God they were they were social commenters you know 30, 40 years ahead of their time because all of those things that they were mocking back then we're hearing those same arguments you know we we see Rawari Waititi ranting on TikTok about colonial governments and the thieving crown gang that had stolen his this We see it on Facebook. We see it everywhere. There's this undercurrent of nasty racism that's actually coming from, from vocal a vocal minority. Actually, they're the fringe people, and the majority of us aren't fringe at all. We just want to go along to get along and we just get yep. sick of all this nonsense. And and also the narrative that they are purporting is, is an insult to my ancestry. You know, I, I descend from Patuani and Tamati Wakanini. Now, if anybody knows their history and what they did, to suggest that they were somehow, you know, ignorant natives who signed up to something that they had no idea they were signing it is, is an insult. They were... They were businessmen, they were academics, they were peacemakers, they were, you know, that their history is astounding. And they signed the treaty fully informed. They were two of the chiefs that wrote to the Crown prior to the treaty in the 1830s, asking for protection from the Crown against the French. You know, that this is the history that they are just totally ignoring. And, you know, I'm not suggesting you you wipe out the good with the bad, but there is some really amazing stuff in our history and some amazing leaders and some incredible stories of, you know, success and triumph and capability. Mm. And the mm. likes of Rawi Waititi, who, who is the type of person that I rail against the most, how dare you? How dare you say stuff about our history like we were, you know, victims of something? Yes, bad stuff happened and we've had a process of redress but don't continue to rob our young people of their opportunity to succeed and their belief in their own inherent capability by saying that, you know, we're somehow incapable of doing it on our own. But aren't we robbing our children's future with the dumbing down of the education system, the rewriting of history, the promulgation of this colonialism is evil, uh, and then even expanding that now into destroying maths and science with some sort of fanciful idea that um, that Maori science, for want of a better term, uh, supersedes actual science. Yeah, and, and that's the, and, and you see that all, all around the world, this idea of academia is being shifted into a, um, a woke sort of environment of just 
virtue signaling and nonsense. You know, we, we've lost the ability to think critically and intelligently and come up with solutions. And and this government has just bought into that narrative to such an extent that it's been accelerated. You know, how can you possibly be tweaking with, you know, nonsense when half of our kids aren't going to school routinely? I mean, right. it's just More than bizarre. Half, more than half aren't going to school, you know. When you've got an education minister who triumphs, uh, you know, uh, announces that it's it's amazing, it's wonderful. We had sixty two percent of people attend our children attend school last term. <laughs> yeah, like and 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 the failure to engage with the people who you know New Zealand Initiative um, with Professor Elizabeth Rathak produced an amazing mm. you know pro- report on education and, and and real solutions, and and we just don't. We don't use the, the the skills and capability and knowledge we've got. We just go off on tangents and reinvent nonsense. I I, I remember Elizabeth Ratter well. She was brought on to a show on Maori TV to attack me, and the two of us ended up agreeing <laughs> pretty yeah. much in the thing, much to the uh, astonishment of Willie Jackson, who was sitting there trying to moderate it all. You know, and yeah, and and that's the point that I, I think the biggest difficulty we have is if we can't sit in a room and talk logically and sensibly about what the issues are, what is our common ground, what what are we hoping to achieve, and there isn't a single person or politician, whatever your your political views, that doesn't want better outcomes, so. You know, and and that's where I see the strength in New Zealand first. The ability to to cross the room to achieve a good outcome is essential, and it will be essential going into government. And as you say, red or blue, you have to have parties that are have the experience and expertise to get things over the line. And I use this quote a bit with the you know Thomas Sowell talks about politics with politics. Mm. There is um, there's no solutions. There's only trade offs. And yeah. and you you have to you have to be good at it. You have to know how to trade off in order to keep mo- moving forward. Um, and, and that's the skill that I think that we need now more than ever. Um, that's the thing that I've been trying to achieve over the last few years, particularly since I had my stroke and the recovery of that. But I was deeply enmeshed and embedded in polarization and party polarization. You know, everyone's still today, you know, I get uh, trolls attacking me on Twitter and Facebook and saying, oh, you're just a National Party spokesperson. And I I learned a lesson from all of that, you know, and I've slowed myself down, but I've learned a lesson that if we foster polarisation and segregation and division, then why would we be surprised when polarisation and and segregation and division occurs within society, and somehow and I don't I don't know if there's anybody you can blame on this, but I I can. Put, it used to be a, a right left argument. It used to be a Tories versus progressives argument. It used to be you know Helen Clark was huge on that. That she was very polarizing. I, yeah. I admire her immensely for her skills, her management skills, her political skills, her, but I. I don't admire the division that she sowed into society back then, you know. And the National Party was just as bad. We had Jim Bolger and people yeah. like that, you know, doing that and Jenny Shipley to a certain um, extent. 
but I've found that talking to people of all political persuasions, and I'm willing to talk to all people, people, you know, across the platform. I'll talk to anybody. Yeah. And moving into media out of politics and into media now, I'm I'm trying to do that. But these people have written this history about me, for example, that says that I'm this awful person that you can't talk to. Uh, and therefore foster that division and that polarization. And that's how I've actually come to spend a fair bit of time talking off the record with people like Shane Jones and Winston Peters and some Labour politicians, actually, and a couple of Greens, because they respect the ideas that people have. They might not agree with them, but they might see a way that those ideas could be moulded, perhaps, or even... Exactly, uh, yep. You know, it, it, I think Winston said to me one day over a whiskey and a cigar, Cam, you, you, can't, you can't change an immovable object, right? It's easier to get the ball rolling and then change the direction of something getting yep. rolling. And, and that was a, a really wise thing. And, and I picked up on that. And it frustrates the hell out of me we, that we've just lost the ability in New Zealand to, and you were talking about that, have these discussions without getting upset about things and work out where is the common ground. And I've, I've had the same thing with Chris Trotter. You know, he and I agree on more things than we disagree on. Yeah. Right? Yeah, if uh, not shifting there, yeah. <laughs> right? So if Chris Trotter and I agree on more things than we disagree on, and you and I agree on more things than we disagree on, shouldn't we focus on what we agree on, not what yep. we disagree on? And and that's exactly the point. We have we have lost the ability to find the common ground, but we've also lost the ability to argue and debate. I mean, I grew up in a household. Dad was a journalist. We argued. Dad would argue one side of the story one day and the next side of the story the next day, just in order to have an argument. Loved an argument, but nobody ever went away. You know, I didn't you know find him a, an abominable person because he disagreed with me or he was mm. arguing against me or anything like that. You, you have the ability to really, and I remember having a, a debate on an issue once and um, it was with my brother and he finally said, well, I'm glad I had that discussion because now I know I'm not a bigot because I did change my mind. <laughs> and that's that, you know, we have to learn and we have to come from different scenarios. And I, I find it really difficult. Like I've, I've had lots of instances you know, Māori TV programs quite often would invite me on because they needed someone to be the whipping post, someone to be the, you know, the the yin to the yang sort of thing. And I'd sit in the green room listening to these representatives of Māori, highly successful individuals talking about how well they were doing. You know, they sold their house and moved to the grammar zone so their kids could go to grammar schools in Auckland and, you know, their property on white, just all of this stuff. But in front of the camera, they would look into the lens and say, it's so hard for Māori. And I thought, why aren't you telling your story? Why aren't you telling young Māori that you can do this too? This is what we've done. Don't look in the camera and tell them that you're predetermined for failure. Tell them that you have the opportunity to succeed. And that's the stuff that got me angry was this, you know, how dare you rob them of their potential by, by pushing that narrative? in order to make yourselves relevant and successful. Well, it's a narrative that I call it disabling. And, you know, people make assumptions. They look at me and they say, oh, well, you're, you're a European. 
you know, you've had been brought up with a silver spoon in your mouth and your dad was a, you know, a, you know, a wealthy businessman. But they don't actually understand people's backgrounds. They haven't bothered to talk and learn their backgrounds. If, if they had, they'd know that my father was brought up in poverty in a state house in a hard hat area of Auckland with a, a split family. His father had walked out on them, emptied the house completely. He used to work at the butcher shop um, for meat rather than wages so that the family had meat. And he learned the value of in education and hard work by having to do that to get ahead. And even then it got worse. He got kicked out of the house and was brought up by his grandmother and his grandfather, which then formed another part. Right. So this is a story that he could use to say he's had a terrible upbringing and as a result, um, he's a terrible father. And But he doesn't. He did the best that he could with the resources that he had. You know, even his, his father even wouldn't let him go to the seventh form. He said, no, you can go out and work. So, so that was the end of him wanting to be a lawyer. He then had yeah. to become an accountant because he was limited by choices other people made. And this is the, the see, I see this all the time. We're seeing this with the Kerry Allen situation where we've got these elite people who have done well for themselves tut-tutting about how terrible it is that Kerry Allen, a wahini Maori, is so hard done by. And, you know, there, she needs some there, there's some pats on the back and a few hugs and it's okay. But if there's anybody else who'd done what she's done, they'd be out there asking for their throat to be cut. And it's just ridiculous to see this. But yeah, apparently, it, apparently we're the ones that have got fringe views, you know. Well, we had that recently when um, a certain Labour MP, you know, put out the her, her tweeted her announcement that, you know, now her father wouldn't have to choose between prescriptions and heating the house, neglecting the family. He's living was, in her house. Yeah, and that she's a Saint Cuss educator, and he's a knight, and you know, <laughs> just drive was, drives drives a Jaguar, and they yeah. have a and they have a swimming pool. You know, yeah, this was not an impoverished person that couldn't afford a five dollar part charge for a prescription. This was a fanciful idea put out there for virtue signaling, and the media all lapped it up until yeah, I came and, along. And there's no- yeah, well, and then there's no consequence to it. There's no, you know, following up on it. I did a um, a submission um, at the Māori Affairs Committee um, called for submissions on the renaming of New Zealand to Aotearoa as a result of the Māori Party petition. That was at the beginning of this year. And, um, of course, I was opposing the distortion of our history and calling New Zealand Aotearoa, but... Um, the, which was a, the, which was a Euro, that, that's the ultimate in cultural <laughs> appropriation. I mean, it's it's so funny. It's not. I mean, it was a name dreamed up by a European writing a book. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it was a poetical sort of. Anyway, the um, I, I was challenged specifically by Rarui Waititi again, and and um, but one of the questions I thought was the most telling because I was just arguing about our history, like this is not. This is not our, you know, this was never the name of uh, New Zealand. It was never, you, you you can choose to call it whatever you like. If you want to do that, you want to change the name, that's fine. But don't say it's because it was the original name of our country. And um, and the first question he asked me was, are you Māori? And I thought, what has that got to do with it? It was nothing to do with it. Why would that change my ability to speak or not to speak on the issue? Um, and, 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 you know, 
concerningly, they, the select committee still hasn't reported back, so I'm worried about what they're sitting on on that. But this this idea that that if you say it often enough, it becomes truth. So therefore, they've said it often enough, so it is the traditional name of our country, despite there being no historical record of it at all, being the name that Māori used for New Zealand. Um, and then all of the 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 um, bleeding heart liberals, as as Winston always calls them, come along and nod and wring their hands and go, "Yes, you know, we've stolen your nation's name." <laughs> it's just it's just such a distortion. But that that's that's the distortion that led us to UNDRIP, because I know that John Key signed up to UNDRIP because he had this belief that there were no Indigenous people of New Zealand because Maori's own oral history says that they were the first colonisers. Mm. Uh, and, and I like to say that to Wairu Waititi. I, I like to say, well, you're the first colonisers. Your oral history tells us that you came from somewhere else and came to New Zealand. So therefore, you you're, aren't Indigenous. You're Indigenous somewhere else. You're the first colonisers. And yep. that's an, it's an inconvenient truth that they don't want to acknowledge because if they do acknowledge that, even though they, they still keep telling us about how fantastic Maori were as navigators, that they sailed here and they arrived here in, in great canoes. And it's a one, it's a wonderful story. It's not, not unlike the story of the Viking explorers going to Iceland and then to Greenland and then to North America, right? It's, it's a similar story. It's fantastic. But it doesn't mean you're indigenous. And 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 it's also become a distraction because what does it matter? You know, it, it, the fact is we have formed a nation, and we formed a pretty incredible nation. And we're all from somewhere else. Yeah, and we've and and that's the Martin Luther King saying. You know, we may have come here all in different ships, but we're in the same boat now. You know, we 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 have to, and that's what I always go back to Sarapuranata. We have to look forward so that we can walk shoulder to shoulder together. To a better future, and and we're not doing that. We're so busy checking behind us and looking backwards, as if there was something better back there that we don't have now. And and while we keep doing that, and while we refuse to allow ourselves to look forward and and look for better solutions, um, we're not going to find it. And and it's uh, it was really interesting at the conference. Um, Catherine Rich, who's now CEO of Age Concern, gave a really impressive speech about, you know, there's there's not just Maori suffering in this country, and really tragic stories um, of aged care of children, a whole range of things. But she reminded me of a quote, and she used it, the quote about um, from Winston Churchill, and it was. It's not enough that we do our best. Sometimes we have to do what is required. And, <laughs> yeah. and we have we have a government now that they actually think, I'm doing our best and we're doing our best and we're doing our best. And, and that is not enough. I don't care how much, if you were running a business and you kept going on about how you're doing your best and you were losing money every day, then at that point you go, well, that doesn't mean anything. You can work as hard as you like. If you're still going backwards, if you're still failing to deliver a product and still unable to produce anything, doing your best means nothing. And that's what kind of where we're at at the moment. Well, that's been the that's that's 
really the hallmark of the Ardern Hipkins regime, isn't it? They, mm. you know, they started off with let's do this, and but no definition of what this was. I mean, we had a couple of you know uh, flagship policies Kiwi built, you know, and it turned out that Labour couldn't build a house in a room full of Lego. <laughs> and then you know they said we're going to plant a billion trees. Well, have we heard where we're at with that? I suspect it's several hundred million short of a billion trees. Uh, and, you know, light rail to the airport. Well, they haven't even laid a millimetre of track. You know, and they've had a couple of goes and several hundred million dollars of planning, but not even laid a, you know, then we had a, oh, we'll build a bridge across the harbour. Well, where's that? You know, yeah. So all of these flagship policies that we all signed up for, for let's do this, turned into not yet or change the name, or let's just not talk about that. And yeah. you know, then we had a year of delivery that delivered nothing. Uh, then we had the year of the vaccine, which has, you know, caused all sorts of divisions in society as well as a result of that. And then when it all got too hard, um, her dibs sloughed off to greener pastures, leaving a complete disaster for Chris Hipkins. And we're seeing that unfold now with the you know, the train wreck or car crash of, of Kerry Allen's career and uh, Stuart Nash and all the rest of the mess that was left really behind by Ardern. And, and these and, people are begging for another go. Yeah, and, and that's the, you know, how insulting it is to those individuals that are running businesses and, and working 90 hours a week and not, not drawing a salary off their business because they're trying so hard to keep things afloat. You know that that don't haven't had a day off in you know three years because they're trying to to keep their businesses afloat. You know anybody who's run a business, and you know I've been in that position where you 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 take you, pay yourself you last. Yeah, you pay yourself last. You you don't you know you don't sleep all of the weekend because you're not sure if you're going to have enough money for payroll on Monday. You know th mm. those are the things that they just have no concept of. And and I just I just I I couldn't imagine how confronting that would be to have you know someone you know stare down the camera and say oh look I'm just I'm tired I'm know. doing my best I'm, I'm doing my best but I'm tired <laughs> there's nothing left in the tank I, I can write a book but I can't run the country you know it's it's rubbish but I mean you look at at housing for example there's nothing more key for society than having its population well housed. And the, and the vast majority of housing in New Zealand is provided by private landlords. It's not by the state. It's by private landlords. So what does this government do? They vilify and attack landlords. Mm -hmm. They heap costs onto landlords and then express utter surprise that rents have gone sky high and continue to climb. I mean, if you go and load up costs onto landlords, and it, whether it's tax impositions by saying, well, you can't, uh, depreciate this anymore, or you can't get, have tax deductibility. Well, if you can't, if they can't do that, and it yeah. doesn't make business sense to do that, the only place that the landlord has got to make it work for them financially is to increase rents. Mm -hmm. If you say, right, we're going to pass a healthy homes, it's an admirable policy. It really is, you know, insulation, it's all good. But if you don't marry that up with education, that you still need to open your windows, you still need to do these things. You still, and at the same time, you've got a cost of living crisis, which is putting power prices up. 
you've got all these you know, tens of thousands of dollars for landlords to put all the heating in. They're going to recover that from the only place they can, which is the tenants. Yeah. And then yeah. that exacerbates the cost of living. And these these lunatics that are in charge, you know, Grant Robertson, I don't think he would know the left from the right of a profit and loss statement. They're sitting there absolutely baffled that that these things have happened. Yep. And, you know, we need we need to actually say, look, enough, right? You're too stupid to be in charge. Go away and go away for, I don't know, a generation. That'd be nice. Go away and learn how the how an economy actually works. And 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 have some respect for the people on which we rely on to keep this country going. You know, when when you're telling you know anybody who's got a bit of money or built up some assets, you know, you're the bad guy and and you're you're the reason why they're poor. I mean, what an appalling message to send to to divide a nation. Like it's just tragic and and those are the the concerns i have about you know if if you know the the biggest thing about the housing housing shortage was the cost of land was a massive issue everyone knew that you need to release land everyone knew you need to make resource management easier simpler quicker and so what do we do what what have we created a co-governance quagmire that is just unworkable and even, no matter how you look at it nobody could make it work but they're pushing ahead and it's just you know and, and and on every aspect that they've touched it's been like the opposite of the Midas touch it's just turned everything to dead weight stone unable to produce anything and and I just it's 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 hard not to go I can't claim to be an expert and I can't claim to be knowledgeable, but the one thing that, you know, we need is practical people that are prepared to dig around and find the answers and not accept because somebody, some bureaucrat came in and told me this is the situation. If you don't have the capability and now to get to the truth and find out what the heck's going on and find the answers and talk to the right people, um, you know, we're we're never going to fix anything. Yeah. And I, I remember in the police association, we always used to joke about the fact that the first term police minister was great because they wanted to do stuff because they could blame everything wrong on the second, you know, the, the previous government. Yeah. The second term minister wanted plausible deniability, so didn't really want to know anything, just, mm. you know, but don't get me in trouble. And the third term was just tell me nothing, like just I don't want to know. know anything. <laughs> Don't you know the Sergeant Schultz I, minister? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you know we're the Labour has accelerated. They, they're taking the third term um, approach in the second term, and they're just distancing themselves from everything. I, I think they're just inept, mm. and we've got an ineptocracy uh, of stupid people doing stupid things, and we need to say enough and. W- yeah, you know, we need to actually literally change. When I say change the government, I mean I don't mean just swap teams. Yeah. I mean, we, we need to have people that are saying, no, that's a dumb idea. No. Yeah, you know, everyone mocks Winston for being a handbrake. <laughs> but but you know, every car has one. No, every car has a handbrake. Why and, is and that? 
that that's the the testament too is that that when you bring more and more bureaucrats into a struggling business you know if you're running a business and it's not going well you you streamline you get rid of all of the surplus you know the marketing people and the hr consultants and the definitely you, get rid of hr <laughs> yeah, and and you streamline. You you work out. Yeah, you know, the receptionist gets sacked. You you know you work through so that you can see every aspect of your business. Yeah, and and know exactly what it's going on. And you don't trust that somebody told me they did something. You actually make sure they did it. Yeah, and not and and that's no and and I can't see there's any difference whether you're running a country, a household, or a business. You have to know. You know, you have to directly know and be, you know, be brave enough to answer the right, ask the right questions. And that's what I think, I, you know, Winston has the credentials where he has always challenged the the, the topics and, and sought the right answers and taken costs to do it. And and, and I think that's, the, that that's what desperately what we need. Well, I've talked to you for about an hour now. And the key thing that I'm picking up through all of this for you is that you want to bring accountability back to government. Yeah, I really do. And I, you know, that's the one thing, you know, when you leave the police, you don't know, you don't think you know anything. You know, you just, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I've got no university qualifications. I've not, I was a, you know, a South Auckland cop. I became a detective. I became a detective sergeant. And what I found after going into the private sector and working was that one skill you have is that you have the ability to find answers to 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 challenge people um, get the truth out of people yeah and and to understand people and and know where where they're coming from and and I think desperately we need to to cut through a whole lot of the smoke screens and mirrors and and I don't think anybody does it better than New Zealand first really well I look forward to seeing you uh, on the front bench of New Zealand First and holding everybody's feet to the fire when you're in there. <laughs> Thanks very much, Cameron. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on The Crunch with me this afternoon. And uh, I wish you all the best for the election campaign. Thanks very much. Wow, what a bright and refreshing candidate Casey is. She's driven to improve the outcomes of all Kiwis and shared that with us. And she believes her best chance of doing that lies with New Zealand First. And she shared also that she has an enormous respect for Winston Peters. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This week on Political Tragics, we go to dig deep into the political intrigue and behind-the-scenes fun and games of political pollster and blogster David Farrer. You've been involved in politics for about as long as I have. Yeah, I joined the Young Nationals in my first year of university, 1986, and I wasn't really intending to, but there was a, they advertised a meeting with Lockwood Smith. And I just thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. I knew him from his TV personality days, et cetera. Um, so I went along really to hear Lockwood. 
and then found out that it's actually their AGM and somehow ended up being made branch secretary because I actually had a computer, um, et cetera. So it was almost a bit accidental. Well, you're the person who got me into blogging um, back in the in 2005 when I started. You'd already been doing it for a couple of years uh, before that. But uh, we started blogging before it was, you know, that popular. And, you know, I I had a little goal there. 20 David. years and yeah. a week I will have been going. Yeah, and I'm close behind you on that. And um, I said a little goal. You probably didn't know it back then, but I, there's no point in coming second in my view. And I always set a goal to try and beat you. And uh, it took me a few years, but I got there in the end. Oh, you did. It wasn't that well hidden a goal. <laughs> you were really <laughs> open about it. Yeah. And, um, and as I said, if someone has to get more numbers than me, I'm uh, glad it was you. Yeah. Now, didn't you get sacked by the Prime Minister once? No. <laughs> oh, come on, tell the truth. No. Wasn't sacked? No. No. Oh, come on. You're going to share something, surely. Well, what, what I can share, this is quite a good little story, is um, in 1999 election, I was doing the polling for it, and we were meant to finish polling on the Wednesday night because doing a Thursday night poll is pretty useless because you, Friday it's all over. There's nothing you can do or announce Friday, et cetera. Mm. So I told the staff we were finishing up on Wednesday, but then got told, no, no, we really want to just, for curiosity's sake, know what the final night's like. So can you organise a shift on Thursday night too? So I said, okay, we'll do it. So we had the staff party and the polling that night. And it came out that National was around 8% behind Labour, which happens to also be the exact amount that the election result was. But the campaign manager was Jeff Grant. And when he called me up, normally I do a written report, but this time it was yeah. just give us the number. So when Jeff uh, called me up, I thought, oh, I don't want to depress them too much. I'll, I'll just say, oh, it was around 6% because, you know, yeah. uh, I just thought cushions the blow a wee bit. And Jeff says, oh, thanks. And then I'm with Jeff and then his phone goes, and it's Murray McCulley. And Murray's asking Jeff, oh, how's the polling looking? And Jeff goes, oh, yeah, we're around 4 or 5% behind, etc." And so he cushioned the blow a bit. And then the next morning at the 5 or 6 a.m. meeting, we're there and the Prime Minister's there. and Which was Jenny Shipley at that time. It was time. Jenny Shipley. And she goes, Murray, how was the polling last night? And Murray goes, we're only 2% behind. We should win. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness. And I've told this story to a few people, including, and, and she's no great friend of yours, but I think you'll enjoy this. I mentioned this at some stage to Michelle Bogue uh, just before the 2002 election, and Michelle made me repeat this story to the entire campaign committee uh, so that they would know this is not to happen this time. There is to be no cushioning the blow. And as you probably know, 2002, the blow was so bad it couldn't be cushioned. No, there's no way you can mitigate that disaster. No. Now, you, I don't know if you want to share this, but you you were the numbers man for Bill English once, weren't you? It's an interesting one there. I wasn't quite the numbers man, but I was very involved with uh, helping with the numbers with his uh, the coup that Don Brash led against him. Mm. And 
what happened is we had the numbers. And so we went out that night and we went to the backbencher to celebrate. Uh, so it was the Brat Pack and me and a couple of others having drinks there, et cetera. But then as happens, and we can speculate on who, one person flipped. And so, and I was a staffer in the leader's office at the time, right? But I was also a national activist, but I was a staffer. I worked for the leader. Yeah. They have the caucus. And to pretty much everyone's surprise, Don Brash walks out first and they've announced he's the leader. And everyone's pretty stunned, et cetera. And this is pretty big. Um, anyway, I kick into professional gear. I work for the leader. Doesn't matter what my opinion was. So I end up spending quite a bit of time with Don that afternoon saying, look, this is what we need to do. I've already changed the website. We need to do a photo shoot. We need to get you business cards. We need to do this, that, et cetera. And I also knew Don. I was like, I like, I thought Bill should have stayed on, but I had huge respect and time for Don um, too. So it wasn't personal. But anyway, so I spent the afternoon with Don. And at the end of it, he goes, oh, you've been so great, David. You've been so good. Look, why don't you come watch the six o'clock news with me and Jalan? I go, oh, that'd be great. And we're sitting in the office. It was pretty much only the three of us. Maybe there was one or two other people. Yeah. And of course, it's the lead item. But around two minutes into the item, TV One News has, meanwhile, the English camp had premature celebrations last <laughs> night. And there's me with Bill English and the Brat Pack <laughs> drinking in the back feature, obviously celebrating. That's they awkward. Through the window from outside. And you can imagine like Jolene's looking at the TV screen, looking at me. <laughs> How is this there? Huge credit to Don Brash. Uh, he kept me on staff. Oh, he was a consummate um, professional, but, of course, he was the first person to get nobbled in the National Party by Nicky Hager. You've got some thoughts about how he managed to get all those emails, don't you? Well, my best guess is every email was to or from uh, Don or a guy, Brian, who worked for Don. and. My guess is that someone got into Brian's laptop somehow. This wasn't a inside job, you know, where someone noble was printing out their own emails. Someone deliberately got into a laptop, copied the emails. You could probably do it in, you know, two minutes, etc., and and uh, leak leak them through. Um, because I can't believe there's a single national MP or staffer who, even if you thought, yo, I'm not a big Don Brash supporter, you wouldn't go give information to Nikki Hager. Yeah, you, know, you give it to the media or something. Yeah, and of course, Nikki Hager used criminal means to to get at me and you and everybody else as well with dirty politics. Yeah, I had a spy, it seems, put into my office because there were documents taken from my office that turned up in one of his box. And there's no way that a random staffer happened to just think, oh, I'll take these home and, oh, who might I give them to? Oh, Nicky. Yeah, it's obviously he got someone to um, go into my office and take a job there. So, you know, 2005, Nicky Hager had an impact in the election. 2014. Well, he helped get national majority. Well, that's right. 2014, he uh, he again came into the election campaign with dirty politics and National increased its vote. That's the one I mean, sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. I hear he's planning something for this election. 
Um, do you think it'll have a positive impact on the victims of his book? You know, he never ever talks to to the victims of his book. Uh, well, all I'll say is his last book resulted in a commission of inquiry led by a former prime minister and attorney general and a former Supreme Court justice. So you can't get much higher than that. Mm. And their conclusion is the principal allegations in the book are incorrect. So well, that's on the record. Supreme Court judge, former Attorney General and PM, looked into everything, heard months of it. His next book, let's just say, I hope you won't need a commission of inquiry to reach the same conclusion. Well, yeah, you and I were subject of the Dirty Politics book. And, you know, having read the book, it, it shows the fevered imagination of a conspiracy theorist in reality. I mean, you know, he was ascribing all sorts of nefarious activities that you and I were supposed to be have been up to uh, for some sort of agenda. Uh, and I think he just failed to understand that you and I do what we do for sheer entertainment. There's no actually actual agenda. And, you know, remember when uh, Helen Clark's husband, Peter uh, Davis, said, wrote about you saying that you're fermenting happy mischief. And I thought that was a perfect description about what we used to do back then. And it was all just really for laughs and giggles. And they thought it was all serious. And, you know, like there was things about, oh, the prime minister directed Cameron Slater to do this and do that. If they had heard the phone calls that I'd had between me and Jason Ede sometimes when he'd ring me up and say, you know, Cam, uh, you need to take down that post. The, the boss is really upset about that. And I'll just say, well, tell the organ grinder to ring. I don't want to speak to the monkey. And that's the sort of um, way that I treated phone calls from anybody in the National Party back then. And I imagine by that stage, you were the same as well. You we were kind of out of the party, not had anything to do with it officially in any sort of capacity other than you were the pollster. And we were just writing what we thought. And it was bizarre. Anyway, it's what happened, and I guess it helped make us more famous than we already were. It did. Now, just a quick, let's have a quick, um, you know, a few bullet, bullet points on some of the key things that you get asked as a as a pollster. Like, I imagine you get questions about what does the margin of error mean? Yeah, look, margin of error, you know, on a poll of 1,000, it's 3% for, for the big parties. And all that means is, look, if it says Labor's on 45%, it means they're actually probably somewhere 95% confident they're between 42 and 48%. So if the polls are really close, like in the New Zealand polls, it's saying actually, you know, it's so close, either party could actually be ahead. If there's a 20% gap, like we're going to talk about in the Northland poll, mm. then doesn't the margin of error can't affect the result, basically. You've got so large gaps. So really the margin of error is just saying if it's really close to each other, yeah, you, know, you can't put too much weight on it. What about sample sizes, David? It, does that make a huge difference? Like, is it better to have 10,000 people polled or do you get the same sort of number with 400 or 500 or 1,000? Yeah, look, at 1,000, it's a 3% margin of error. If you did, I have to check the exact numbers, but I think if you go up to... 1,500 is still a 2.5% margin of error, and it's really not worth doing an extra that. A thousand's the gold standard, basically. Um, yeah. um, there. If you go 
much under 500, the margin of error is getting over 5%, and that's getting, you know, but too much for those close results. So generally, most polls we between say four hundred and a thousand people. Right. So if you say polling of four hundred people and you've got a a, a clear result of twenty percent difference, the margin of error you've just said is largely irrelevant. There's almost no point in polling an extra four hundred people because you're going to end up with the same sort of numbers. Is that yeah? What the saying? only reason you might poll more is if you want to place a lot of reliance on the breakdowns by gender and age. Because yeah. a four hundred poll, then you've got two hundred women, two hundred men. That's getting like a seven percent margin of error. So if you're a political party, you'll probably do bigger samples because they do need to know. How are we doing with men, women, under 40s? But if it's a media poll, actually um, that top line figure is still quite robust. The polls uh, seem to show that at the moment, well, it might be slightly different with all of this, you know, Kerry Allen stuff impacting the government. But let's just put that to one side. The latest polls show that it's almost harder to pick than a broken nose. Would you Would you agree with that at the moment? When I speak to uh, groups around New Zealand, I say, look, the short answer is it's very close. The long answer is it's very, very, very close. Uh, No poll for the last 18 months has had either block get more than 62 or 63 seats out of 120. You need 61 to one. Yeah. Um, And that's partly because, you know, you've got two centre-right parties. You've got New Zealand first if they make it, and you've got three centre-left parties. And, you know, the two blocks are very balanced. As a professional pollster for this election, do you believe that, uh, let's just talk about the minor parties. National's going to get there. Labor's going to get there. The Greens are going to get there. ACT is going to get there. To party Maori, let's not talk about them because they've got, you know, kind of a, a bent system that helps them get there. For the minor parties, including New Zealand First, what do you see as seeing now as a gut feel on who is likely to get there and who's likely to not get there? New Zealand First is the most likely minor party outside Parliament to make it. I wouldn't go as far as to say the odds are 50-50, but they're definitely better than last time uh, because I think the issues they're campaigning on, uh, especially around co-governance, are striking much more resonance. They have some competition there. Um, My general rule of thumb is, look, if Winston goes into the election with a public poll showing him at 4% or above, he'll make 5 because we know he campaigns well. Yep. If he's below 4%, the challenge for them is going to be that sort of relevance, wasted vote, et cetera. So I think the public polls over the next two months will be quite important, but he's definitely got the best and you could almost say the only chance of of making it from the parties that are not there at the moment. David has an amazing insider's view and political career advising numerous prime ministers I always value the things that David has to say. He's a true political tragic and provided some real funny insights into how politicians even manipulate their own masters by fudging the numbers. Coming up after a short break, we'll see what David has to say about the Northland poll results. Just a wee reminder that you can catch The Crunch every Thursday from 4 p.m. right here on RCR. Remember, you can check out 
all past interviews on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Now we get to what everyone has been waiting for, our exclusive RCR Curia poll in Northland. What are the headline numbers there, uh, David, and what is it showing, especially for Democracy New Zealand? What do these numbers show? And this is Remember, this is exclusive. This is the first time that anyone's polled in Northland and we've got a stake in the ground here uh, so that we can you know, hold the feet to the fire of all the candidates. Yeah, well, on the candidate vote, we can talk about the party vote also, of course, but you've got Grant McCallum, the national candidates at 38%. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Willow Jean Prime, the incumbent MP, a pretty disastrous result. She's only 18%. So she'll be hoping for a high list ranking then, won't she? Yeah, and she'll need a very high list ranking because at the moment, Labor's only going to get around five list MPs and she was number 10 on their effective list, i.e. when you take account of who wins electorates there. Uh, So it's not looking good for her. You've got Shane Jones uh, next on 6%, and then the ACT candidate, who's a list MP, Mark Cameron, in fourth place on 3%. And Matt King, the former national MP and leader and candidate for democracy, ended on 2%. Now, there are 30% undecided, and we talked about Marge of Error. Yeah. So what that says is you can't totally rule out, you know, that that 20% between national and Labour could maybe get closed if, like, national candidate has a bad campaign and the other ones, the uh, you know, there's three other centre-right candidates, Act New Zealand First, Democracy New Zealand. They all had really good campaigns and got up to 5%, 10% each, and Labour gained a through. Possibly it's plausible that, you know, there. But outside those two, if you're polling three months out at 3 or 6% or 2%, it's very, very hard to see that there's any pathway to, to you winning uh, there. You know, you'd have to win two-thirds of the undecided voters, and minor parties have never done that. So 
very much my reading is this is national seat to lose. And that's no big surprise. It has, with the exception of when Winston won a Hinabar election, has been, a, and last election where Labour won it, has been a pretty solid national seat for a long time. So what we're really seeing is a sort of return to normalcy. If you yeah. look at the party, that shows how much things have swung against the government because you've got National at 36% and ACT at 16 Add those two get together, 52%. Add Labour and Greens together, 23%. And you've got 16% undecided. So on the party vote, it's very clearly going back to the centre-right. And when you ask people, as we do, this is one of the most powerful questions, I think, do you think your country's heading in the right or the wrong direction? Is I'm just bringing up the exact numbers there, but they're pretty terrible. Yeah, it's pretty You've bad. 19% of Northland residents in this poll say we're heading the right direction, 71% the wrong direction. Yeah. So again, you're the Labour candidate, very, very hard to win against that. And people have sort of worked out, I think, in that seat, yo. They, 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 they're actually quite smart. Act's got 16% party vote, but only a few percent electorate vote. So they know if you want to change the government, yo, you have party vote for any of the centre-right parties. But if you want to win the seat, you get behind the, the centre-right candidate who's most likely to win. And, yeah. and that's clearly Grant McKellen. So just to clarify, you, you asked people, uh, which candidate from which party you would give your candidate vote. You didn't ask about names. You just said, who who would you vote for the national candidate? And then they said, oh, I'll vote for the national candidate. Or yeah, we said, say which candidate or party's candidate. So they might just say the national candidate, or if they know the name, they might say Grant McKellar. They might right. say New Zealand first candidate. That We don't give them a, a list. We just say which party's candidate or candidate will you vote for? What we did do though is after we asked that question, mm. because we don't give them names, we then just ask, can, can you name, name the candidates for those five parties? That was and, interesting. Those numbers are fascinating. Yeah, because the Labour candidate who's the current MP, 39% knew she's the current MP. That's mm. actually low. Electorate MPs generally should be at 70% name awareness. Seven out of 10 people should be able to say who the local MP is. There, it's only four out of 10 for Willow Jean. Mm. The national candidate's not got a great name recognition at 29%. Admittedly, he's been selected a bit later, but yo, know, he should be aiming for 70% also. So he has to really double his name recognition there. Yeah. The act list MPs only at 7% name recognition, which surprised me because normally list MPs do have a local profile. Mm. Shane Jones, actually, of the candidates not in Parliament. It's an impressive number for him, really. Yeah, 34% could name him as the New Zealand first candidate, etc. So he's certainly known there, um, but mostly, though, people are still not saying they're going to vote for him just because they know he's he's the candidate. Now, Matt King, you know, he, former MP, former MP, bet, bet Winston in 2017 um, there, but having defected to and set up Democracy New Zealand, 
even though you know he's very active with his meetings, only one in five or nineteen percent knew that he was the candidate. And we actually tried to help them a bit because we actually said, "Can you name the leader and local candidate for Democracy New Zealand?" Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's he's half of Shane Jones. As yeah, I f- I found those numbers fascinating, and I was um, talking to uh, Morris Williamson offline earlier, and um, he said to me when he first got selected in Pakaranga for the election there, that uh, that he spent six months going to basically the opening of every envelope um, and. Uh, public meetings and getting in the local paper and and the entire team worked you know twenty four seven to get the name awareness out and he had this big meeting with the committee and said we we've done an amazing job this is going to we, we're going to do some polling on rate name recognition I expect our name recognition to be massively up there and when he got the results a week later he had seventeen percent name recognition he said it sort of popped his balloon a bit that all of that work was almost for nothing. Look, it, it is hard, hard work. Some candidates, you know, are at 10, 12% name recognition. And the challenge is they're now in the last 90 days, which means they've got a spending cap. Yeah. I always think you should select candidates the year before the election. And from January through to three months before, you should be spending 50 to 75000 at least on name recognition, public meeting billboards, mail drops, door knocking, uh, turning up to all the meetings, etc. For uh, it really does make a big difference. So your call on Northland, uh, based on this poll, is that it's pretty much a lock for the National Party and the national candidate, both in the Unless list. they did something really bad, yes. Well, Grant McCullum's not known for that. No. I know Grant. He's he's pretty solid. I've known Grant for nearly thirty years. You know, he's a board former board member of the National Party, and and you know, he's just a solid farmer. He's never going to set the world also on fire. Has a very big membership base in the electorate. Um, hmm. I understand the former MP John Carter is in charge of membership, and um, in the past, I don't know how many they have at the moment, but you know, he's. So has had them up to nearly 2,000 members at times, and they might be $1 members or $5 members, but Doesn't still they're on your mailing list, and yeah. they'll probably be putting hoardings up. Yeah, the, Northland's always had one of the biggest memberships in the National Party you know, from the time that I can remember. Um, you know, my father talking about membership in Northland was always rated as, as a high. Yeah, they're from the old school of get as many members as possible club rather than the Murray McCulley club, which is to have as few members as possible because they're yes. pissed. Again, they try to roll you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so you're the ultimate political tragic, really, David. You're the one who got me started into blogging. And, uh, you know, People we had some... me for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I don't know if you know this, but um, in 2008, remember we did the blogmobile trip all around the, the country and we had spent two or three hours with Jacinda Ardern having lunch um, in, in uh, Morrinsville. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, I understand that when Dirty Politics came out that um, David Cunliffe, who was the leader at the time, called all the caucus together and said, right, now who's met these characters, David Farrer and Cameron Slater? And 
apparently Jacinda Ardern, to her credit, actually put her hand up and admitted to the fact that she had had, had a lunch with us back then. Um, so yeah, I thought that was funny. I was told that by several uh, Labour Party caucus members, yeah. and I challenged them and said, well, you've had something to do with me. Did you put your hand up? And they said, oh, hell no. <laughs> Thank you for coming on The Crunch with me today, David, and sharing the numbers about the Northland poll. And uh, I look forward to touching base on some other polling questions closer to the election. Looking forward to it also. Fantastic. Thank you. As you can see, David had some good insights there into the challenges for both Matt King and Shane Jones in Northland. The margin of error is irrelevant here as the gap is too large for that to take into account. And it would be a miracle, really, on these numbers to defeat the current national candidate, Grant McCullum. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. On the line with me now is Matt King to discuss the results of the poll. Matt, we've had a lot of good feedback about the interview. I think you've picked up a lot of support out there in Reality Check Radio Land um, from the interview that we had last week. But now it is time for the reality check. We've got the results of our first poll in Northland, exclusive to Reality Check Radio. And um, welcome to The Crunch. G'day, Cam. Thanks for uh, having me on. Appreciate it very much. Anytime, Matt. It was a pleasure to talk to you last week, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you again this week. Now, we've had the poll results uh, come in. Uh, Basically, 38% of those polled have said that they're going to vote for uh, Grant McCullum, the National Party candidate. 18% say they're going to vote for Willow Jean Prime, the Labour Party uh, sitting MP. Uh, 6% are saying they're going to vote for Shane Jones. 3% for Mark Cameron and 2% for you. Have you got some comment on those numbers? Yeah, Cam, that doesn't ring with what I'm getting around the, the electorate. I've been, I've had about 14 meetings around Northland. Um, every one of them has been nearly a full house, massive feedback, great volunteers. I mean, last night we had a meeting in Whanganui. It was uh, probably 70, 70 to 80 people there. Um, so hardly any, any uh, free cheers. And uh, feedback's been really positive. So that, that really surprises me. I well, know it's, that it's just a stake in the ground, I guess. We, you know, nobody's done a poll there before, so that's why we thought we'd do a poll to put a stake in the ground. And now we can measure progress for the uh, eighty-one day, eighty odd days that are left in the campaign. Uh, and, you know, you, you said last week that you were knocking on a lot of doors. Um, it looks like you need to knock on a lot more. Look, oh, yeah, I, I get that. I, I mean, what I've got to try and get past is that. That the uh, the major parties are, are got, have got all their people out there saying um, that it's a wasted vote or, or or we're splitting the vote and we'll let Labor back in and and that's um, you know thirty years of MMP people are still thinking with uh, first past the post thinking. Um, yeah, it's a good point. It's a really good point you raise. But you've now got um, an empirical poll, um, you know, that you can point to people and say, well, actually, we're not splitting the vote here. There isn't any vote splitting. I mean the 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 poll showed that there was 30% uncommitted, that they were unsure of who they would vote for as their candidate. Now, that's a lot of votes that are up for grabs. 
but you need to grab all of those in order to to get past Grant McCullum. Or Grant McCullum has, uh, you know, uh, an embarrassing news story or something goes wrong in Northland with Christopher Luxon and, and something happens there. But there's still 30% of respondents in this poll are saying we don't know. And we're, we're what is it, 11 weeks out from the election. Yeah, well, um, what we've got to is that when I when I talk to people and I explain the situation where, you know, in Northland they can party vote for who the party they want and yep. they can yep. candidate vote for the candidate they want, and that if they party vote for the party that they want, which is um, trying to get Labour out, which everyone's really scared about um, Labour getting back in, they can. There's no downside or no risk to to candidate voting myself um, because there's, I'm more likely to bring some of the um, some of the undecided vote from around the country in as as um, as list MPs with me and make up the balance of power. So and get a, and ensure that we get this government out. So I've been going around. Um, everywhere I can and as much as I can, uh, passing that message on to people. And every conversation I have where I talk to them about that, and it's, you know, it is hard going because you've got to get so around so many people, um, they understand that. They rec- recognise that it's a strategic vote in Northland. Um, as I described last time, Cam, it's not a red-blue horse race. So uh, that's that's where I'm at, and I've obviously got a massive job ahead of me, but um, that, that's, what, that's my job I've got to do for the next 80-odd days. But you always knew that you had a massive job ahead of you, and that that this electorate uh, gives you an opportunity. Um, but what our poll also shows, because we also polled for name recognition, is that pretty much the electorate. I, I, I know this disagrees with your anecdotal evidence on the ground, but we've got the hard evidence here that. Pretty much all of the candidates, including Willow Jean Prime, the uh, sitting Labour MP, uh, have got a majority of people not knowing or recognising who their name is. And uh, that's that's the biggest challenge, to get your name out there. That, hey, Matt King is standing again and, um, and vote for me. Yeah, well, we don't get any um, – we've had zero mainstream media coverage Actual fact, um, we've you know been on reality check a couple of times, a couple of times on a couple of other um, non-mainstream news, but we don't have the um, we don't get the coverage that the, some of the other parties get, whether on mainstream media all the time. So yeah, we've, I mean that's the, that's the challenge of, of a minor party starting up is to actually get across, get your message out. And what I say to people is, and we've got eighty days to do this, is and we'll be going hard out. Is mm. to let them know that when when they're actually thinking about who they're going to vote for and the way they're going to vote, there is a strategic vote there that they can do where where there's no downside. And for me, I, I guess we'll be advertising, we'll be uh, pushing out social media, we'll be doing it at all the meet the candidates and every bit of publicity we can. I will be saying to people, hey, there's no downside to giving me your electric vote. There's absolutely none. And 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 if I can get that message out to enough of these people and enough of these undecideds and a few of the people that that are staunch nats. That they can recognise that um, that, that, that there is no there is no downside, then then I've got a chance. And I'm I was at a farmers meeting today, uh, a DNZ lunch luncheon, and and I was talking to the average cow copies there. There was a few of them, and I was asking them what, what they thought. And they this this first thing was, yeah, Matt, we, we really like you. We liked you as the MP, and we'd like to have you again, but we don't want to risk Labor getting back in. And when I explained the, the strategy behind it, they all all understood straight away, and they said, oh, you wouldn't get that, yeah. We've got two votes. We can vote strategically, and we can ensure the the, the uh, Labour government are kept out for a decade. That's um, what so I find just... astonishing. That after thirty years of MMP, 
people still don't understand that in except in rare electorates like Northland or Epsom or places like that, it really doesn't matter who you vote for for your electorate MP. So you may as well have an insurance policy. But it's the party vote that's critical for everybody. Um, but a small party is able to drag in a couple of extra MPs if they can win an electorate seat. And that's why I always say the two questions I ask minor party leaders, what are your, what are your plans to win an electorate seat? And what are your plans to win 150,000 votes? And yeah. you clearly answered those questions last week, which, mm. which was good. Um, but the focus now has to be on you need to get out there and 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 really rattle some cages in the local electorate and and get across the line there. And if there's an upset, I'd be very pleased for you to, to see that happen. Yeah, well, we had a poll um, when I was running in 20, 2020, and that showed me oodles ahead of, of the Labour candidate when I was, you know, I was running as a national candidate, like 20% ahead, I think, and um, safe margin anyway. And on the day, everything changed. And no, twenty twenty uh, was twenty twenty was you, it was. There's nobody predicted that result. There's no way no. that it looked like that. No. And, so I'm I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the number of undecideds. I'm also. I mean, for me, I talk to a lot of people around there. Uh, even though we've had NMP for thirty odd years, people still think first past the post. And you can, that's the thing that you've got to try and break through with people and say, hey. You can be strategic here because you imagine a scenario where they two tick the national candidate, right? And they get to the election and they're they're sitting at 59, them and ACT are looking at 59 seats and they need 61. Well, actually, you need 62 or 63 to be safe. And and I go to national voters, I say, well, you know, if you'd, if you'd given me the candidate tick, my, I might have bought those two or three in and we would have guaranteed and assured a change of government. Mm. Um, and when I say that, people, they, they do, but you know what, because I can't get on mainstream media and talk like that, I, I have to do it, um, you know, person by person, room by room. And so um, we've got a pretty pretty good campaign and it will be concentrating on strategic voting and um, more so than actually selling our policy. We'll be talking about how you can ensure that we have a change of government by by strategic voting. Northerners will decide that. So, yeah, your, your poll tells me I've got a hell of a lot of work to do. But um, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lay down. I'm gonna go hard. Um, that's what so, I've done. So yeah. Matt King's not showing away from the challenge. No, not at all. And you know what? Everyone wrote me off when I was up against Winston Peters. Everyone. Um, yeah. Exactly the same feeling. Actually, there was a there was a basically a vibe amongst people as you don't have a hell shit show in hell of winning against Winston. And and um, I was I was just doing the work on the ground quietly as, as much as I could and and beavering away. And I did that for a long time. I was quite confident that I'd, I'd done enough to get across. And when I had the result came through and I won by 1,500, I actually felt disappointed because I thought that I was going to get more. And and so I look at this and I go, okay, you've, you've done a poll. It, it is a stake in the ground. Um, and and, and it, it indicates to me that I've got a lot of work to do to try and get that um, that strategic folk message out there and, and we'll be focusing on it. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, as I said, it is a stake in the ground. We needed to measure that. Um, that then allows allows you to reinforce that message. See, we can actually make a difference here. But mm. um, it is a steep uh, mountain that you've got to climb. But you knew that when you left the National Party and went out on your own. You knew you'd have the, the, the forces of the elites against you. Yeah, well, Cam, I, what I did was, I mean, I could have, I could have been um, 
if I'd been unprincipled, I could have just sat on in, in the blue in the blue uniform and 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 rode 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 you know rode the chariot through onto the next election. And I, but I know in my own self, my principles were um, challenged by this whole thing. And I, regardless of the outcome of this election, I did the right thing, and and I can sleep well at night. I I felt so strongly when the mandates came out that I have to do something for my family, for my community, for my country. And that's why I went out on this, um, you know, what we've started and the created a party. And, um, you know, regardless of the outcome, I'm, I'm very happy with the decision I made and I sleep well at night and I'll look back on these times and go, um, you know, I, I'm on the right side of history and I'm very comfortable with that. So, yeah, hey, look, this is, this is, this is a, not a good poll result, but I'll tell you what, We've got 80 days to go, so I'd love to be talking to you at the election and say you you be congratulating me from from coming from behind and 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 pulling off the win of the century. So, well, look, I'd like nothing better than to talk to you the day after the election and that you're the new MP for Northland, and there'd be a whole lot of people out there um, who will be cheering you on. And um, you know, I've been critical of you in the past, but one thing I can't criticise you for is the heart that you're showing in the campaign and and the fight that you're taking uh, to the campaign. And, uh, you know, that's all that we can ask of people who put their name forward for public office, that they do their best and they do as much as they can uh, to try and get elected. And it's it's a really hard job standing for parliament. It's a really hard job standing for public office. Mm. And um, people don't, I don't think people understand just how hard it is. Uh, and, and when you see raw numbers like this, it can be disheartening, but, the ones that succeed are the ones that pick themselves up and and carry on and press on regardless. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best in the campaign and no doubt we'll talk several times more before the election. Hey, I, I, um, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about the new Cam Slater this um, being nice to me. It's like, uh, it's really, it's kind of a little bit unnerving. <laughs> But yeah, I appreciate yeah, it too, Cam. I've, I I've it had too. a few comments from uh, mates saying, "Who's this? Who's this, Cam? What happened to old Cam?" I said, "Well, old Cam's dead. Uh, yeah. Old Cam died uh, when I had a stroke, and this is new Cam, and this is really the first outing that people have, are seeing now. The new Cam, and so thank you very much for that comment. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, Cam. Yeah, okay, yeah. mate. Thank you very much, Matt, and all the best for the election campaign. We'll talk again. You're a good man. Thanks, Cam. Appreciate okay. it." No worries. See ya. Now we have Shane Jones waiting to discuss the poll results. Welcome, Shane, to the crunch. Hey, man. Greetings. So I haven't shared with you these numbers yet, so it's going to be a bit of a surprise for you, but uh, we are... Oh, it's, poli- uh, it's politics, mate. <laughs> so we uh, we engaged uh, Courier Polling uh, to do a, uh, a poll in Northland Electorate. A lot of people have been saying that it's make or break for... Uh, two parties in particular for New Zealand First uh, and for Democracy New Zealand. Uh, We had a number of uh, different questions, but the key question uh, that I want to get your response for today is that if a general election had been held yesterday, which political party's candidate are you most likely to vote for with your electorate vote? And the... Results are the national candidate, Grant McCallum, scoring 38%. The Labour candidate, Willow Jean Prime, scoring 18%. And then Shane Jones, New Zealand First, which is you, scoring 6%. And Democracy New Zealand's Matt King scoring 2%. So a bit of work to do there, Shane. Uh, Without a doubt, and the next 10-odd weeks, 
the most important thing really is to, well, it's a two-tick campaign, is yeah. both to promote uh, my track record, but more importantly, promote the uh, relevance and the track record of New Zealand First as being the vehicle that has um, consistently developed a good record of um, delivery on the ground. The uh, work that we've been doing, uh, I think, is, is certainly resonating, the public meetings and getting amongst the people. But obviously, historically, this has been a national uh, seat. But hey, so the voters are going to have a strategic choice to make. If yeah. they want um, a third party called New Zealand First to hold the seat of Northland, thus guaranteeing the delivery of other MPs, then they're going to have a clear choice. It, it's obvious from the voting patterns that we've picked up that a lot of people are returning to their former uh, vote. One thing about this poll, though, Shane, that I should share is that there's 30% of respondents said they were unsure which candidate they would vote for. But you would need to pick up all of that 30%, but you still wouldn't beat National on that current poll, the national candidate on that current poll. Are you expecting to see these numbers jump around a little bit? Yeah, I mean, all of these polls, they take a shot at the moon. And each week represents a further opportunity to get out there and till the garden. And that's what we've got to do. I do think if you look back at the history, for example, of other candidates like Gary Knapp and the Social Credit, mm. which I've made the effort to do, they always polled until the very end uh, as third. And then people started to genuinely focus their attention on how do I get the best bang for my buck? How do I make one vote deliver five candidates? Yeah, and that's the key, isn't it, for New Zealand First? is that if they vote for the Jones boy in Northland, then there's a good chance there could be seven or eight other MPs that go in with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's important that the listeners bear in mind that all along we've had a two-tick strategy. We wanted to put our best foot forward and get out there and, and hustle for votes in a seat that's traditionally been national, although there's been a lot of volatility, what with uh, Willow, um, uh, surprising everyone and winning the seat with 17,000 votes and um, Winston himself winning it in the by-election. But look, it's a good uh, it's a good wake-up call. There's lots more work to be done and we've got the time to do the work, mate. Well, there is some uh, good news in the poll. We also asked if people could name the electorate MP for Northland, the National Act, New Zealand First and Democracy New Zealand candidates. And this is where it gets quite amusing. The Labour MP, Willow Jean Prime, only 39% of respondents could name her. 54% had no idea and 7% got it wrong completely. Uh, okay. The, Grant McCullum's got a real problem here. So he's he scored top in this poll. But when pressed uh, to name the national candidate, only 29% of respondents could name him, which is lower than the score he actually got. Mm, mm. Uh, 69% said no idea. Uh, for you, uh, you uh, actually scored the second highest. You, you got 34% of respondents knew who Shane Jones was, and that was only marginally behind Willow Jean Prime's name recognition, 
So in terms of name recognition, uh, you're um, in second place there, which is, I think that's a, a good indicator for you, Shane. Yeah. Look, I don't want to get too um, churlish, but if you break down the phraseology and curious question, they're really asking what party are you going to vote for? Yeah. Yeah. And um, fortunately, uh, they're saying 6% at this stage will vote for New Zealand first candidate. And that's really what that question was about, party identification. Yeah. So uh, if you if you look at, say, the last, I think the last turnout, um, Cam, was 45,000 votes. Yeah. So um, do the maths yourself. Um, a third of 45 is 15,000 votes. Yeah, and I think you said thirty-eight percent was the case with uh, that's Grant. Right. So that's that's kind of their long-term average, sixteen to seventeen thousand. That's what National consistently get. Although Willow leapt from eight thousand up to seventeen thousand the last time. Yeah, but that was an and aberration, then, and everybody knows that. Yeah, so I mean, eighty percent pretty much is what the candidate consistently gets, and the party has been getting in Northland. If you divide, yeah. say, nine thousand into forty-five, you're with, you know, you're, you're yeah, yeah, you're, you're you're getting close to uh, the figure where historically mm. uh, Labor has achieved that. But no, no, I think the personal brand is well known, and it's really just breaking down some of the anxieties about their view about uh, maybe decisions that were made in installing Jacinda and all stuff like that. But I've got to say. The voters are always right, although they do confound me because in Northland, no one claims to have voted for uh, Willow, uh, yet she wiped the field. Well, you know, we did ask um, a, a party vote question as well. So it, what's interesting is that New Zealand first uh, party vote indicator from the, the same people we polled was 5%, but your name, when it came down to choosing the New Zealand first candidate, you were at 6%. So you're actually doing better than the party. Yeah, no, well, um, we've historically attracted a high percentage of the New Zealand party vote out of Whanganei and Northland. Yeah. Um, the, uh, don't, uh, are the ACT Party standing a candidate in Northland this time around? Yes, they've got Mark Cameron. Okay, so is he actually going to stand as a candidate for the seat or is he just a party list? Um, uh, he's standing for the a candidate for the seat. So, oh, really? Okay. But, but I mean, let's have a look at uh, his numbers there. Uh, he's just three percent, so he's slightly more than Matt King, but um, half of what you what you're getting. So, you know, it's not really a factor. It's more a factor on the party vote for for the ACT candidate in Northland. They're getting sixteen percent uh, on the party vote. Um, but only only three percent for the candidate, so a, a big a marked difference there. And the party vote turnout for uh, the Labour Party? Uh, it's uh, down it's to nineteen percent. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that's nine thousand. Yeah, that's right. And uh, if eighteen percent was Willows. And that's pretty much down to eight and a half thousand, which is yeah. the long-term average. Yeah, well, it's it. This... And then, and and then the people, and then the fifteen thousand people. I think you said thirty odd percent. 
that's that's a third or 45. Yeah. Whoever attracts them or wherever they go will determine the outcome, mate. Well, that's always been the way those undecided voters and it'll be in. We're going to try and do another poll before the election and hope and that we should see an indicator that that 30% number drops. But if we end up in the last couple of weeks of the election with a, still a large number of undecided, then that's going to become very interesting. And if it is the same across every electorate, then uh, mm. you know, it'll, the result will be well, hard, harder to pick than a broken nose. Yeah. Tell me, um, uh, Ken. What is your personal sense as to how many people will remain undecided until the last two weeks of the election, mate? That's always confounded me because I've always been myself fairly certain about who I was going to vote for uh, come the election. Uh, although the last two or last three elections for myself, I've always sort of wavered until the last minute. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a large sector of society, and I think that number thirty percent might be a little bit high, but it's somewhere between twenty and thirty percent are genuinely wow. undecided and and are sitting there going, well, you know, um, we don't really much like the crowd that we've got in now, but we kind of don't like the national party either. So when those people break and how they break is going to be really interesting. And I don't think we're going to see too much movement in that until the last couple of weeks. And then it could be a, a helter-skelter, um, you know, rush towards the pot. To the and what, and what do you put that down to, Ken? I think a lot of people are realizing that um, changing the red team for the blue team is uh, a case of diminishing returns. and. Uh, if they did look, they're just so similar in all of their policy settings. It's just the manner in which they want to deliver the result, um, you know, of what they want to do. Uh, you could put a tissue paper or a cigarette paper between between the two policy uh, platforms that National and Labour have, and I think that this election really should be uh, the election of the third parties. But okay. There's this disparate, a lot of disparate voices that are out there calling for this and calling for that, and, and there needs to be some sort of coalescence around a party that's likely to make it into parliament. That's my personal view. What what that party looks like, who that is, I, I don't know. Is it ACT? Is it New Zealand First? Is it Democracy New Zealand? Well, the voters will choose and ultimately will get the results of that. But I'm not sure that David Seymour has earned the right to get more than 10%. Mm, mm. Well, it's going to be, uh, oh, it's, it, you're right, mate, it's going to be a wild ride. And I'm finding in the North, a lot of people are quite cheery about telling you how they really feel. Yeah. Uh, whether or not it's they're not fully engaged or they just feel um, anxious that if they give you the wrong answer, you're gonna, they're going to be pulverised. Isn't that just the tragedy of where New Zealand has landed right now, that people seem to be afraid to have an opinion? You know, I, I can remember back in Muldoon's days, there'd be hundreds of protesters outside political meetings, and, and the National Party uh, people welcomed the protesters. It was a bit of fun. And nowadays, you can't seem to have an opinion, opinion that varies that from, from what the ma mainstream media or the woke tell us we should be doing, and they try and shut you down and cancel you. And, and, it just appalls me, you know, 
that we've landed in a society where we've got people that are too afraid to tell a pollster or even a politician on the street that they suck or 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 they're great. You know, I agree with you, mate. It's 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 crazy. I I'm on my way to actually um, uh, meet up with some of the railway people, but I was horrified when I was told uh, by some locals that the reason the $96 million, which was allocated to reopen the rail to Ortedia and the Bay of Islands to get the trucks and the freight off the bloody road, because our roads mm. are in a dire state. The reason they've been unable to do it was because a hapu held a meeting and de- ordered them to cease and desist, or they threatened violence. Now, obviously, they ceased and desisted. That is absolutely un unimaginably intolerable. What about the rest of the North? There's 190,000. Why on earth should we be held ransom to by the timidity of Kiwi Rail staff? But more importantly, about a couple of dozen hobbits threatening to do that. This is what's wrong with New Zealand. If I'd have still been the minister, mate, that bloody thing would have been built. We'd have just gone straight over the top of them. You stand to the side. These are legal rights. We're doing this for the entire region and for New Zealand. There's been a rail here for uh, decades, decades and decades. In fact, that's how the original Tohenare got to Wellington, on rail. Mm. Mm. And I think that that tiny example speaks to how we've allowed a, uh, a very dangerous culture to take root, that it's easy to hijack the agenda of a democratically elected government and reward the um, ill-chosen words or dangerous behavior of uh, minorities. And quite frankly, this is what's driven me to be probably more adamant than Winston sounds on um, getting rid of the tri- Waitangi Tribunal's current writ, getting rid of co-governance and going line by line through a lot of our legislation and ensuring that we haven't institutionalized the ability for um, hijack politics. Well, I think that's uh, you know certainly a message that a, a large number of people are, are listening, you know, looking out for. Um, you know, I've I've just uh, shortly before this spoken to Casey Costello, and she was saying exactly the same sort of thing. That's what's motivated her to get into politics, you know. And uh, you know, I said to her at, during the during the chat, I didn't even know that she was Maori because the media have maligned her and Don Brash so appallingly over the years, labelling them as racists. And uh, I fear that uh, you and Winston are also going to get called racists by, you know, these ne'er-do-wells. That my grandmother used to call them ne'er-do-wells, and I always thought that was a cute phrase, but I really understand it now. They, they don't have any yeah, yeah, interest no, no. in what's good for the country. They're only interested in themselves. Yeah, yeah. Now, my grandmother used the word layabout, and there's a Māori term for it. It's called mononoa. I learned that in Awanui when we were at school, people who wouldn't uh, pick up after themselves. Mm. And, um, oh, look, mate, um, we're going to continue to bloody um, champ, uh, well, not so much champion, but promote and propound that message. But in relation to more work to be done, well, there's votes to be harvested. We're certainly going to shrink the size of um, uh, Grant's current uh, vote, win some of them from Labour, and win over those 30%. So it's good to talk to you, mate. Yeah, well, I wish you all the best, Shane. And, uh, Thank you very hopefully much. we'll talk again uh, before the election. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. Reality Check Radio has now delivered a reality check for Shane Jones and Matt King in Northland Electric. Both guys have a lot of work 
and not very much time to turn around that poll in their favor. There is now a real stake in the ground, and we'll revisit this important race as we get closer to the election. Now for something new. I've decided to share with you how I get impartial advice about issues by calling a few of my mates. Most of them are non-political, and we've known each other for over 20 years. I regularly catch up with these mates, and they always give me their unvarnished views on anything. This week on The Crunch, Cam's Buddies, we hear what they think about Winston Peters and New Zealand First, and I'm not expecting this to be pleasant listening for Winston at all. Right, they're all lined up on hold. Let's hear what they have to say. Good afternoon, Mike. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. G'day, Cam. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm just um, I'm doing a phone a friend to all my buddies uh, to get a, an idea on how people think Winston Peters and New Zealand First are tracking after their campaign launch. And uh, people think, you know, I'd like to say that uh, I'm a Winston Peters fanboy. And uh, I thought I'd uh, contact a few of my mates and uh, who I know aren't Winston Peters fanboys and uh, see what they think. Yeah, I think it's a bit unfair to call you a Winston fanboy. You've certainly given him a bit of a nudge along, but I think that's that you see with us some need for change from what we've got, that certainly in the past Winston has added a certain amount of colour and direction and um, perspective to the political landscape. Well, he's a bit um, of a rascal and a scallywag, so isn't he? He is. I mean, Winston... I have a problem with Winston after 2017. He made a lot of good noises on the campaign trail. I went down to the polling booth for 2017, seriously considering giving New Zealand First my party vote and couldn't quite do it at the last moment. And while I was quite happy I hadn't, I can't really say I did it for any reason other than a nagging doubt. It wasn't intelligence. It wasn't a crystal ball or anything. Yeah. Um, I was really disappointed when he, after quite a lengthy lot of coalition negotiations, stood up, gave that spiel that started out OK and just showed further and further that despite the sort of stuff he'd campaigned on and typical Winston Peters, that he was going to go with Labour. But the real kicker for me was him saying, capitalism has failed. I think events since then have proven that statement to be exceptionally wrong. Yeah, I think I think he probably used the wrong term, but I'm not going to put words in his mouth. If he had said globalism had failed, that probably be more accurate. But capitalism has never failed anywhere in the world. In fact, it's the only systems that that's um, actually managed to succeed despite various different upheavals in you know society over the over the hundreds of, if not thousands of years. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that's what he should have said. The trouble is, of course, that any coalition he can form now is still with parties who are, if not fully on board with the globalist agenda, certainly leaning towards it. Um, is that Would that be a reason so, why you would perhaps vote for um, New Zealand first in order to keep a muzzle on the globalists and national enact? I think that I'll... Hark back to something with Winston, oh, got to be more than a decade ago, probably a decade and a half ago. It was out at the Coombe UANP show. New Zealand First had a big stand there, as did a couple of the other parties. And Winston's going on about his anti-immigration, particularly Pacifica immigration, and he's got a 
coconut shy, five bucks to throw some coconuts, to knock some coconuts down, as he said he was going to do in the typical Winston, not very PC way, in terms of repatriating all the overstayers. Yeah. I thought it was a good gag at the time, but the world's got a bit woke now for something like that to go. But, of course, he didn't manage to carry through on that because he's never actually had the numbers to push any of his policies through unless it's been as kingmaker in 2017. And even then, he would have been shouted down. They may have agreed to this or that as a bottom line, but any of his more contentious policies were never going to happen. No, and, and that it, is the MMP problem. It is the MMP problem, and, it, and it's the problem with people like yourself who go into the polling booth thinking they'll they'll vote one way and then go, oh, no, I'll go that way. And then he doesn't get enough uh, votes to actually deliver any of the so-called bottom lines. And uh, it's, I don't think many people actually realise that. But, uh, I mean, you know, we have these uh, discussions. I think that's really what I was saying. I think that's really what I was saying. You can... Um, Get yourself in, you can be a part of a government, but you're only a minority part of it. Mm. And as such, you um, end up powerless despite the best of intentions in statements, policies and promises made in the lead up to an election. And that is one of the biggest problems with MMP. If we want something proportional, we need to go to some sort of preferential voting system that would put the power back where people really wanted it, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a whole other discussion about how MMP has failed to deliver us decisive governments. In fact, it's delivered us dithering governments. And some would say that's a, a good feature of MMP, but uh, it means that the things that need to be done to get New Zealand ahead don't get done. And uh, we're just continually playing around the centre and not wanting to upset a few thousand people um, that live in the leafy suburbs of Auckland. Yeah, I think you've summed that up quite well. But I think there's a way that um, Winston and National and Act can, and in the current situation, need to ensure they can um, implement a bit more change if they win the election between them. How would it's they do that? Not beyond the realms of, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that National and Act will get to 61 seats on their own. Yeah. Come October. In which case, it doesn't really matter about Winston on the, on the surface because they'll just do, we can go this alone, see you later, Winston, we're not interested. Yeah. That would be rather stupid because as we've just seen, you get an MP that does something stupid like run into the back of a ute or whatever or get accused of beating somebody with a bed leg 20 mm. years ago or anything yeah. like that, you can end up with a by-election situation and that may swing the other way depending on the severity of what they've done, the mood of the nation and how many people they've annoyed in their first 100 days. Yeah. And suddenly you've got a government that doesn't have a majority anymore and they need to then start negotiating with somebody to give them confidence and supply, sit on the cross benches. I would much rather see the insurance policy of... We will take New Zealand first in as part of a coalition. That should, on the polling numbers, give a little bit of a buffer. So if anything untoward happens, they've still got the numbers and don't suddenly need to have a great reset. But it also has the um, benefit that 
national particularly, and ACT to a certain extent, are very much not wanting to scare the swing voters. So they're being pretty low-key and mediocre on some of the statements they're making. I mean, Luxon's pushing a party that's probably to the left of Helen Clark's last government. Yeah. Yeah, and so if Winston was in there, he'd be able to do some things, take the blame for it, um, but they're the things that are necessary. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Winston can be the scapegoat. Whether it was a bottom line or not, they can go and do some national act coalition with Winston tagged along with them, can go and do something that is beyond what they campaigned on, is going to upset a few people until they see the results from it and say, sorry, in order to gain Winston's support, we had to agree to a list of bits and pieces that weren't bottom lines, but we'd implement some of them as they became available. So you've got Winston as a scapegoat or a justification. You've got the ability for them not to sit on their hands meddling in the middle, which, as you just said, is a rather nasty symptom of MMP governments. Um, And I think that would be a good outcome for New Zealand. Oh, well, it's in the hands of the voters, I guess, and and whether or not uh, Christopher Luxon and David Seymour have enough uh, cunning to actually include New Zealand first should they meet uh, get across the 5% threshold. I mean, I would have thought, you know, um, if you just get there with 61 votes, having an extra five MPs as a buffer it would be a sensible idea. I know John Key did that for for that exact reason. I think that would be a very, very good idea. And I also think that if Luxon is intelligent, and let's face it, his track record in business shows that he is, because he wouldn't have got into the positions he did with Unilever and Air New Zealand and so on if he was stupid. Um, He should be sitting down for a cup of tea or coffee or a whiskey or scotch or something with Winston. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with Winston and laying out that sort of thing and then coming back to the voters to say, if we are in a position to form a government alongside ACT, as the polls seem to imply, we will be including New Zealand first to ensure a safe majority in case the untoward happens. And people, you can like it or lump it, that would have two effects. It would mean that people wavering about if Winston doesn't get to 5%, it's a wasted vote. Yeah. So they will then place their vote there. So ensuring he does get some MPs through on the 5% threshold. But it would also then stop a lot of national and ACT votes drifting off to New Zealand first quite so badly and would probably actually cover off... um, a better way of taking votes off um, Labour and the Greens. Well, I think that's that's a distinct possibility. Act's never going to get people to take, take votes off Labour. Neither, and National gets some, but there'll be a lot of Labour voters that think, oh, I really can't vote for National. Who else is there? And if they've got the option of New Zealand first, then, uh, then uh, they can safely do that, knowing they haven't voted for National or Act. Yeah, and there's also, I think, especially among the Blue Rinse Brigade, a bit of a following for Winston, who, if they were sure that they weren't throwing their vote down the toilet, they would do it. I mean, he is Mr. Super Goldcard. 
He sure is. Everyone says he's never delivered anything, but he delivered that. Yeah, I'm not old enough to care. <laughs> oh, we're both a few short years away from that, uh, Mike. You know that. Indeed we are. Indeed we are. So, yeah, there's my kind of potted thoughts on this. Um, no, I'm not brilliant. likely to vote for Winston at the moment, but if there's a little bit of an insurance policy against the vote not being wasted and maybe some fairly well-confirmed pieces to ensure that he goes where he will and is going to have the ability to deliver some of what he says, I'll make my mind up a lot closer to the election date when everything's a little bit clearer in terms of numbers, policies and potential alliances both ruled out and pretty much guaranteed in. Yeah, well, that sounds like a sensible uh, position and I dare say there's quite a few people that are in the same position as you, keeping a, a weather eye open to see whether or not there are uh, there is um, a possibility they could change their vote to that, but it it's, it all comes down to the campaign, and we're in the most exciting part now. Um, it's kind of been a false war, or a, you know, like like they had at the start of World War Two. There's this you know dummy war that was going on. Well, we're well into it now, so um, we'll probably see some uh, polls start closing up uh, or, or extending gaps, uh, but. You should start seeing this. I believe it will start seeing the smaller parties growing the vote. I think you're right, and I think effectively stuff just got real. Exactly. Thanks for calling Cam's Buddies, Mike, and uh, we'll be in touch again, um, I'm sure. Thanks for the chance to chat, Cam. Have a good day. Thank you. G'day, Paul. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Hello, Cam. Hey, Paul. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, people think I'm a bit of a fanboy of Winston Peters, and I want to get uh, a bit of a vibe off some of my mates and what they think uh, they've seen from the launch of New Zealand First and some of the policies that are out there. Well, I've been a bit disappointed in Winston Peters in the past, and um, I was concerned that he took a long time to figure out which party he was going to join. Um, and when he was the... the I guess the ping maker, it, in my view, seemed to go to his head and he would draw it out and draw it out and draw it out. And then um, when he, in um, two elections ago, when he went with Labour, yep. I must say I was very disappointed. I thought, oh, yeah, we've, we've put those folk in again. Yeah. So it felt like um, a betrayal then for you? Well, it did until I actually sort of thought, well, did I vote for him? And, of course, I didn't vote for him, so how could he betray me if he did what the people that voted for him wanted? And so I thought, okay, that might be a bit more reasonable. Then I was talking with a friend of mine, Phil, and Phil is quite, um, he's quite an aviator. Like, if if it could be flown, he's flown it. And mm -hmm. there was an accident in a helicopter, and he ended up flying. He said, oh, that particular helicopter, I've had 2,000 hours in. I said, 2,000 hours in, in helicopters? He said, no, more than that, but 2,000 in that particular type. So he's an aviation expert. And um, he was telling me that um, the New Zealand CAA was banning anybody from becoming a pilot or a commercial pilot if they were colorblind. 
And in Australia, they weren't doing that. And so he went and chatted with Winston. And Winston said, well, Phil, tell me what needs to happen. And he went through a few things. And he said, well, that doesn't seem reasonable. That's, we're banning a lot of good New Zealanders from becoming a pilot. So Winston got the right people involved. And now, if you're colourblind, you can become a pilot in New Zealand just like you can in Australia. So that's it's sort of added another three or four percent of young people who really wanted to become a pilot, enabling them to be a pilot. So I thought, well, hang on, he's a get things done sort of a guy. So so now I've sort of changed my mind, but I still think he's um he sometimes cracks on a bit like um, he wants to be the kingmaker, but mm. when he is in fact in, in Parliament, he does seem to get things done. So have you voted for New Zealand First in the past? Never. Never? Never. So are you... One thing what, that I did... Go. So, so what would it take for you to consider voting for New Zealand First and Winston Peters? Being having never voted for New Zealand first in the past. Well, one of the things that he can't do because he's already done it was when there was a protest in Wellington and a number of people um, were considered the scum of the earth and I heard in the media many times how the scum of the earth weren't getting vaccinated and they were a unruly lot. I thought... I didn't particularly want to be vaccinated myself. So I thought, well, I'll go down and see such people. So I flew down to Wellington and uh, me and a couple of mates, yourself included, went down to Wellington and Winston Peters spoke there. And I'm thinking, hang on, all the politicians won't talk to us and Winston Peters will. And I thought, now that's a pretty interesting thing. And then I looked at the other members of the different parties and Labour were making sure that we were going to be mandated and they were going to force it on us if it wasn't for the protesters, is my belief. Mm. And then National was saying that they were going to do it, but they were going to do it faster. And then um, ACT was saying that they were going to do it faster and more efficiently. And then I thought, here's Winston down here listening to us. We've got a voice. And it's a trial vaccine and people have had things pulled over their eyes because suddenly doctors weren't allowed to be doctors without losing their license if they said the wrong thing rather than what they believed they could prescribe. So Winston's now got my interest as someone who would in fact think and ask the people what do they think. So maybe I've been a bit harsh in my judgment of him and I'm, I'm a definite swinging voter. I don't know who I'm going to vote for, but I'm particularly keen not to vote for someone who wants to force people to do things regardless of the efficacy of it. Well, that's, uh, there's no a whole lot of us that are swing voters at the moment and uh, looking about for uh, you know some, a home for that. Have you considered um, uh, David Seymour and the ACT Party? I have indeed. I went and chatted with David Seymour personally, and I went and said to him um, a couple of questions. I asked him a couple of questions, and I talked about some different things that bothered me, and I couldn't gain any traction, or I couldn't. 
he didn't seem to be on the same page as me. I found him very intelligent, very articulate, but he, we weren't on the same page. So I've voted ACT a number of times, and I thought, I don't feel good about voting for ACT at the moment because they want to force the citizens of this country to do specific things and in line with um, vaccination status and, and all this sort of thing. And I'm thinking, that's really not me. Well, that's uh, interesting perspectives, Paul, and I always value your wise counsel on that. So thank you for coming on Cam's Buddies, and I hope to make this a regular feature where we talk about uh, any particular topic that takes our fancy. All good, Cam. Take care. Talk soon. Thank you very much, Paul. G'day, Jack. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Hey, Cam. How are you? Yeah, good. Hey, um, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions. You know, I value your counsel and uh, you, you're a curmudgeonly sort of a fellow, and we're, but you're never short of offering your own opinion to uh, anything we might be talking of. And, you know, I, I sometimes use what you say in, in some of my articles. So I just wanted to touch base with you on a couple of things that happened over the weekend. Go ahead. So you might have been uh, aware that New Zealand First and Winston Peters appear to be back in the in the hunt again. Have you ever voted for New Zealand First in the past? Yes, I have. Yeah, how often? When, when was the last time you voted for them? I think it was the last time and the time before that. Right. So 2017 and 2020. Correct. And and how do you feel about um, voting for Winston at the last election? And the one before that? Well, I think um, if he hadn't have been in with Labour the first time, um, things would have even been worse than what they are now. So you're saying that Winston acted as a handbrake on the on Ardern for the first term, and then when he was gone the second one, we ended up with the schmozzle that we've got now? Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. So are you happy with that vote that you gave New Zealand first, those two elections? Yeah, I am, um, especially the first one. I, I have to admit, I didn't think that he would have gone with Labour, but um, at the end of the day, I was glad that he was with the government rather than being not in the government. So based on the campaign launch and some of the headlines we've had over the last few days, are you contemplating voting for New Zealand First again, or have you opened up your eyes to some other alternatives? And if you have, what are those alternatives? Um, it'll either be for Winston or for ACT, but it won't be for Labour, I can tell you that. What about the National Party? Uh, if Winston was um, in charge of the National Party, I'd vote for them. <laughs> Um, but the lead, the current leader of the National Party does not inspire my confidence at all. <laughs> I don't think he inspires too many people's confidence. Have you considered uh, looking at, say, Democracy New Zealand or some of the freedom parties? No, I haven't. Why is that? I don't know. Um, I Probably because I'd consider it a wasted vote. Right. So Perhaps, I don't know. Yeah. What would you want to see from Winston Peters this time around that would make you more happy uh, placing your vote for New Zealand first? Well, if we could get him in government, the first thing, and it sounds very trite, but the current representative for foreign affairs got 
does my head in. When Winston was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, at least I thought someone who understands, is intelligent, well-dressed, represents us properly, unlike the incumbent. And is there anything else specific that that uh, that you'd be interested in? Are you are you a a uh, senior citizen voter that uh, is looking for some additional things to make life easier? Well, I'm a senior citizen voter, <laughs> for want of a better word. Um, yes, I'm. A, I think I'm about the same age as Winston, um, <laughs> and I do admire his intelligence. Unfortunately, um, unless he can get. Uh, into some form of power within a government, it's going to go nowhere. Oh, well, well, we'll have to wait and see. There's a, a, a few people that are umming and ahhing over, over voting and where they're going to go, and I'm I'm just canvassing people's opinion. People think I'm a big fanboy of Winston Peters, but people who know me know that in the past I've slagged him off mercilessly in the past, so... Uh, uh, at the moment, I'm still a floating voter. I don't know wh- which way I'm going to go, but uh, you sound like you're just about there or sort of confirmed and it would have to be um, something dire that would make you change away from New Zealand first. Well, no, I'm also considering ACT. I mean, I I, um, I do think they're good. What I'd like to see from Winston is um, the other uh, party members. I have no idea apart from... Shane, who doesn't impress me at all. Um, mm. I have no idea who the hell else he's got in there. Right. So, so what you're saying is, New Zealand first better show us uh, their slate of candidates so that you can be better informed. Yes, and I know that's my fault because he obviously has got them. Um, so, um, it's my fault that I haven't looked it up. But I want to see them. Um, showing it. Just, instead of just being just Winston, it has to be the others. And Shane yeah. Jones does not appeal to me at all. In fact, I think he detracts from the party. Oh, well, that's... And he'll be a reason I wouldn't vote for them. Well, Shane Jones listens to the to, to this show, so uh, I hope he gets that message. Well, he has to stop the bluster and start being a normal bloke. I mean, his guy's got plenty of intelligence, but it's the way he comes across. Well, uh, maybe I'll um, I'll send him a text message and say, Shane, you better listen to Cam's buddies because uh, there's some wise guys there that have got some uh, some sensible advice for you. Well, I'm I'm sure he couldn't give a toss, but uh, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, will do. All right, thanks, Jack, for calling in to Cam's buddies, and uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again uh, next week or some other time. Okay, Cam. Take care. See you later. Thank you. G'day, Marcus. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. G'day, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, good. You're one of my cigar buddies. But well, we haven't had yes, smoke I am for indeed. a while, have we? No, and I blame you for that. Of course you would. You always blame me. <laughs> hey, um, Marcus, Marcus, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. You, you're one of my hardcore fanatic anti-vaxxer mates, um, you know, like me. You, Apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you resisted the urge and uh, uh, to to roll your sleeve up, and you fought the good fight on Facebook. uh, Copped a numerous bans for the whole thing, but uh, you were staunch the whole way through. Indeed, mate. Didn't take um, any of the um, jabs, and didn't take um, any rat test or anything like that the whole way through. So I don't think um, I'm a a bit of a. No, no, I got kicked out of. some shops for not wearing masks, even though I had a um, mask exemption. 
Yeah. Now, well, you're in, in the same boat as me, but um, <laughs> you've you've been a floating just, vo- I, floating voter for a while I, though, haven't you? Without a home. Yeah, I have been. Um, well, traditionally, my background has all been always been national, I suppose. So centre right is my politics, but. Um, yeah, I've, as of recent, um, it's been a bit difficult. Um, last time I voted ACT, and this time I'm not voting ACT, but I, I'm sort of leaning one way. But yeah, it's been a bit of a um, difficult decision. And I mean, I'm I'm one of these crazy conspiracy theorists that think maybe possibly we are not living in the democracy we think we are living in. But um, on the chances I'm wrong, I'm going to vote. And um, yeah, I'm looking so for not, some. So you're not some voting. Home. Yeah, so you're not voting ACT. Why is that? Well, uh, um, David Seymour's um, always been a proponent of personal liberties and and um, sovereignty over oneself and that sort of thing. And his actions over the um, the vaccine mandates prove that he's really just all talk and he's not really a man of principle whatsoever. So um, it was it was noticeable for people like me, and I think he's a lot of his voters are like that personally. Yeah, have you considered any of these so-called freedom parties that are out there? You know, Liz Gunn and uh, Matt King and and all these. You know, da- um, Brian Tamaki's party. All have you looked at any of those? Um, I've looked at them. I'm a, I'm a realist, and I, I know your your term of opium is a, a reality. Um, however, I mean, I, I feel like I've been burnt in the past by trying to be clever about my vote. And this time I'm a little bit more principled in where I'm going. Um, so all of the smaller parties, whilst I agree with a lot of what they say, I don't think they're going to be an impact in the actual in the system. Um, similar to your thoughts, as far as I understand, anyway. So it's at the risk of wasting one's vote. I'm looking for something that's going to be tangible, I suppose. So it's not the National Party. It's not. Act. No, definitely not. It wouldn't be Greens. No. Well, uh, no, no, not Greens. <laughs> Labor? Uh, Labor, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be nah. I, I don't know how to answer that without swearing, so no, no, no not no, Labor. No swearing, this is a family show. Uh, and you, I know you and I are prone to using four-letter words um, uh, in... <laughs> it was gay abandoned too um so who so so where you're at gay, then, gay, gay gay is a th- three letter word mate yeah no well, that's right but it's not a it's not a terrible word so where so where do you think you're going to put your vote this election well until recently uh, i was quite interested in listening to your um interview with winston peters because whilst i like what x says I like the words that they say. I like the words. I mean, much like a lot of people, I think last time when they voted Labour, they like the words that Jacinda said. When it comes down to it, words are just words. So you want to look at their track record and what they've done and act let me let me down. Um, they basically shunted me as a, you know, someone who's not getting the vaccine. They thought I was the, the scourge of the earth. And um, so he showed his true colours. Now, Winston... Peters is interesting to me um, because I've always thought of him as just a politician who says things to make them make himself appear to care about the people he wants to get the votes from. So that's been my thoughts up to this point in time. And what really bothered me about Winston was how he acted at the beginning of all this mandate as well. So I had sort of written him off somewhat. but then, then you interviewed him recently on Reality Check Radio, and um, 
he did something no other politician that I know of has actually done since the mandates. He he showed some regret with his actions, um, and that that means something to me. Um, I was I, I've been lobbying ACT um, David Seymour to do the same, and he's basically just doubled down on his actions, and he thinks that it's okay for businesses to to fire people for not getting vaccinated if that's their company policy. He he's not about freedom and personal choice at all in that case. So it means something to me that David, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, um, Winston Peters has apologised for what he's done. Well, he hasn't really apologised, but you understand what I mean? Yeah. He's acknowledged. Getting the sorry word out of a politician is is like getting blood out of a stone, but saying regret, I, I was not entirely happy with that, but on the other hand, it's a movement in the right direction, and and you know I I would hope that you, we're going to see that from other politicians. But I saw a public meeting where Christopher Luxon was asked similar questions, and he just doubled down on it all. And especially the way he besmirched people who were involved down in Wellington, and that includes me, and um, you know a lot of a lot of others like yourself, and we we all participated. Or if we didn't couldn't get to Wellington, we supplied you know, resources to to make the freedom uh, camp uh, uh, much more habitable. And to have him besmirch anybody who was involved in that with really, you know, facetious uh, excuses to for the appalling way that, that everybody who was involved were treated just leaves me with a, a cold, cold shudder. It's, it's ironic that they um, labelled the people outside who were protesting for their livelihoods and the Mrs. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Joneses of the world who are trying to fight for their right for individual choice when it comes to medical procedures. They labelled them the river of filth, and really, actually, the river of filth was on the other side of the beehive, as far as I can see. Yeah, it was, it was in the Parliament's buildings. Yeah, we we... we we actually changed the name in our household to from the beehive to the wasp nest. <laughs> <laughs> what are you looking for in this election, um, uh, Marcus? What are you looking for personally and also for the country? You seem a bit of a freedom lover and uh, uh, anti-establishment type person. What tell us? Tell the listeners of Reality Check Radio what it is that you, that would ensure that you're going to vote for a party or a politician that's going to deliver on that? Well, I mean, words are simple, you know. Anyone can say words, um, which we've seen over the last two terms of Labor. They've just said things, 100,000 homes, all that sort of thing. They've just absolutely lied to people with knowing that they're not going to achieve what they're saying. And to me, the most important thing when it comes to who I'm going to vote for is integrity and principles. Um, I consider myself a man of principle, and I mean, I've made my mistakes in my life and that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, what it, when it comes down to it, principle means everything to me. It's um, it's You can say whatever you want, but if your actions don't back it up, then basically you, you're not for me. And um, that's why I'm impressed with, with Winston Peters at this stage, because he's at least acknowledged his... Um, shortcomings in the past and I mean it wasn't the apology like you said that we all wanted um, because some of his tweets and that sort of thing were pretty pretty bad pretty he's palmed it off as, um, yeah 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 and, and he's palmed it off with his, his staff and whether that's true or not it's not really 
the point because he's acknowledged the fact that he's in charge of that. So, and he regrets it. So, that that means something to me. Um, again, I I haven't voted for Winston before, so I don't know. I can't really say I'm disappointed with him putting um, New Zealand first with Labor at the last stage because I didn't vote for him. I voted for um, Act at that stage. So I can't be disappointed. So I can actually be disappointed with David Seymour because I voted for him. So this time around, at this point in time in the um, in the election process, I'm looking at voting for Winston Peters. I was, I'm very impressed with Matt King up north as well. Um, I think he's he's got his heart in the right spot. Um, whether he can make it through the, the gates is another thing. But, um, I mean, if I was Northland, I'm not in Auckland, but if I was Northland, I'd be giving um, Matt King my, my vote and New Zealand first, um, my party vote. Right. Well, that's a bit of, you know, that's uh, making a bit of a spread, but I guess it spreads the love as well. If, if only we could all be in Northland and we could do that and then end up with Democracy New Zealand in, in Parliament as well. Yeah, I mean, it would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Well, it would sure make the National Party sit up and and, uh, and wake up maybe to some of the things that went on um, that they need to be held yeah, to I account mean- to. National National is no different than Labour as far as I can see, mate. Same, uh, different sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. It's not even the other the other wing of the same bird. It's the same wing of the same bird. Yeah, yeah. It's a a coin that's uh, been minted by WEF. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, Marcus. Well, thanks very much for your feedback on. Yeah, thanks, Marcus, for your feedback on that. And uh, hopefully you can become a regular contributor to Cam's Buddies, even though you're not a buddy. We'll see what (laughs) – no, no, definitely not. Yeah, we'll catch up for a smoke sometime. Sure we will. (laughs) Okay, buddy, thank you. Okay, mate, thanks. See you, mate. I reckon that I'm as good at what I do because I have plain speaking buddies who are unafraid to challenge me or my thinking. There are many times my views and reckons have been formed or changed by these free and frank discussions. I'm going to keep this up, and if you'd like to be one of my buddies, then let us know in the comments sent to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but... Practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Let's get into the mailbag and your feedback. Karina says, well, after listening to KMS, that Nats and Act definitely will not be getting my vote. 
that makes my decision easier now, shocking on those people and parties. What a great discretion by the crew and listeners and myself marvel at the amount of truth coming from the talk that we've been deprived of for years. So many thanks for teaching us to say no to political nonsense. Thanks, Tony. Judy says, why are ACT Party members refusing to be interviewed on your platform? Cameron Slater touched on it today, and I was disappointed as I'm interested in listening to an interview with an ACT Party candidate. Stu asks, we're loving your work at, with RCR. What with the liability of billions of our pollies signed us up for re-emissions in 2030? Who was that traitorous fool? I don't know, Stu. Maybe give us a clue. Dave says, love the new show. It was a great interview with Winnie. I also can't work out Seymour's aversion to freedom. Sylvia says, a very interesting interview with Cam Slater and Winston Peters. Cam is an asset. Yeah, I think so too, Sylvia. We'll add you to my buddies. With regards to the Auckland shooting, Doug says, I'm informed but can't confirm that the Auckland shooter was on home detention with an exemption to go to work. And that's correct, Doug. The Auckland shooter was on home detention despite having four convictions for violence offences. Got a long one here from an anonymous person. Says, hi, Cameron. Sorry, mate, but although Winston has said he would completely rewrite the gun legislation, he's only doing it to put the gun licensing and registration in independent hands. He's not removing the gun register and he's not allowing us to have our guns back. Personally, I'd like to see handguns made more easily available and open and concealed carry laws introduced. Could you clarify his position on this, please? Great interview of Winnie. I'm going to listen to his mate who I just heard a snippet of tonight, but they need to do much more to convince me to trust them. I want them to commit to every single day they have a, have question time to ask questions about the scamdemic and the COVID injuries and deaths. That's what Winston is good at, so get him to commit, please. We need these 120 in Wellington to be investigated and held responsible for their actions. We need answers and we need accountability, and we need justice. On the Matt King and Shane Jones interviews, we've got some feedback on that too. Thanks so much for doing the poll in Northland. Awesome work. Awesome show, Cam. Loved your show and loved the interview with both Matt and Shane. Listened to your interview with Winston, and he seemed to redeem himself until he was interviewed by Sean Plonker Plunkett. Hmm. Cheers, Dot. Bridget says, hi, Cam. My husband and I really enjoy your show. Very interesting topics and guests. It is great hearing you interview the Northland candidates in a non-combative manner to let them put their views across. I'm backing Matt King, our best shot at Freedom Party in Parliament. And Bridget also gives us a guest suggestion. Please consider giving some attention to Sue Gray, who is standing as a candidate for West Coast Tasman. Keep up the good work. Well, Bridget, I'd love to have Sue Gray on the show, and she's welcome to come on the show at any time. Tony says, hi, RCR team. I've just listened to Cam's delightful interview with Matt and Shane, who gives hope for all of us to have confidence in the election to see some new leadership and direction, a much-needed change in direction for our country and our democracy. Regards to Cam for a great listen and hope there are more folk aware of the quality of RCR radio that conveys the truth. What a team. Winston, Shane, and Liz Gunn 
could be to sweep out the dregs from our political dunderheads to lead New Zealand back to its rightful place in history and world respect. Natalia says, hi, the RCR team. Thanks to Cam Slater for the crunch political show. Matt King interview was superb with interesting and fair questions asked. Looking forward to the next Crunch show. Keep up your awesome work. Thank you. Compliments to Cam Slater on his show, The Crunch, for a well-rounded interview with Matt King. So nice to hear a cool, calm, and collected discussion between two people. Thanks, Deborah. A very interesting political show by Cam Slater, The Crunch. Matt King interview is just superb, fair journalist work. I support Democracy NZ. So was pleased to listen to the balanced interview without gossips involved. Greg says, hi, I just listened to a replay, replay on the crunch with Matt King, and I must say he sounded like another dishonest politician. Hi, Cam, really enjoyed your interview with Matt King today. I've followed Matt from his first tour through New Zealand over a year ago, and what he and Democracy New Zealand do resonates with me and still does, and so they will get my vote. I enjoyed your interview and thought it great to see you were fair in your questions and raise some good questions. Great work. Regards, Jean. Chris adds, I'd just like to say I thought your interview with Matt King was very fair. He has a lot of supporters and the freedom community want someone like him in Parliament. The present lot in Parliament are all corrupt globalists, so we need a fresh face. If you'd given him too much of a hard time, it would have looked biased, which is not what good journalism is about. I heard Sean Plunkett interview Matt, and Sean came across as an arrogant, biased prat. You've gone up in my estimation, as that was a good, fair interview. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Cam. I appreciated your effort to give Matt King a chance to put his case today. I won't vote for Matt or his party, but it was interesting to hear more about what he thinks and believes, and you've managed to give us that today. The result of your poll will be fascinating. So thank you again, Jude. I can't believe we haven't had any negative comments. Surely there's some haters out there uh, that I can read out their stuff on Mailbag. Look forward to hearing your feedback from today's show next week. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR. Right, that's it for The Crunch this week. Next week, I hope to explore some dodgy legislation and crunch some interesting data regarding gun legislation. It's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. I'm loving the feedback and really enjoying sitting in the host's chair. I hope you can tell that I'm enjoying it. So a big shout out to all of you and thank you for listening and having faith in me as we explore this beautiful game of politics. Email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview, and let's make the show the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next, with features including money talks with my best buddy Farzan Irani and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. Finally, to finish up, I thought we'd play another of my favourite songs by The Cardigans, My Favourite Game. Looking forward to having you joining me next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. 
Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.